This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Friday morning to you, friends. Welcome to the program. You made it another week. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Doesn't that feel great? Thank you. Yes. And uh, the 4th of July is coming up in just a few days. So it's it, for some of you, it's going to be an extended week, a weekend. You're going to get into Monday, maybe. You're not going back to work Monday or Tuesday because of the big holiday. Are Jeff's, we coming back Monday? Yeah, we're coming back Monday. Okay. <laughs> I'm happy about it. You know, Jeff, you can take a vacation day. Uh, I just took like a week and a half. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of a weird holiday. It wasn't vacation. You're right. I didn't get any sleep and I didn't even get to play with my girls. So there you go. <laughs> but you, you received a gift from heaven. That's true. Perfect little boy with a name. You forgot his name. How do you forget a name like his? Come on. Um, and you said it like you know every day I for a week. I did. That's why, that's how I remember things. But, um, I'm losing my mind. I think when they took my gallbladder out, I'm, I have a drain of knowledge that's leaving me. The worst thing I remember are names. I can't remember anyone's really? name. Once you're out of my orbit, you're, yeah. well, you're, I'm you're Matt. gone. I'm Matt. This is Jeff. See, but Terry's forgiven. You, you, really, you I, really don't remember his I name? I know his kid's name. You don't remember it, Matt. I'll give you three seconds. Um, Two, one. It's a Scottish name. So embarrassing. It's not Scottish. What is it? Stas. Oh, Stas. Stanislav. Scottish. Yeah. No, I, I, I kept thinking. I don't know. I was just... Stanislav. Yeah, Stas. Well, that, his real name is Stas. It's not Stanislav. <laughs> yeah, Stanislav is what I'm going to call him. Obviously. I couldn't <laughs> remember I it, but obviously. No, but that makes... The, now it's coming back to me. You know what I think it really... I really do believe... I, I spoke last night to a group, and I couldn't remember jokes or stories that I've told for years. Mm. Couldn't remember them. And I'm pretty sure it's the gallbladder. It's the surgery. It's the anesthesia. Mm. I don't know. I can't attribute it to anything else. Because I know Stas. We've been hanging out. He's been coming over. Really? Yeah. Hmm. In fact, you owe me some babysitting money. Wow. Uh, today, by the way, is social media day. <laughs> this is the day that we get to celebrate all things social. Do you have the song? Why did you bring your parrot with you to work today? Was that my parrot? That was that was Twitter. Do you have the song? That was Twitter. The tweeting. song. You don't have the song? Let's get social. Oh, yeah. Go find the social media. It's in the song. system. It's Let's the, get social. Yeah, it's from the social media conference, and it was put together. <laughs> it's one of the greatest songs of all time, and uh, it's I, easily overlooked by many. I didn't like like Jeff. I don't know that Jeff was here when we when we originated. Have you heard this song, Jeff? This is the greatest. I have. Let's get old, Joe. No, that's uh, not no, it. No. Type it's, in social. See if it's yeah. this. Yeah, as they're looking for it today with, with social media, twi- Twitter was organized, uh, was used to organize, if you remember, protests during the Arab Spring. So they were using Twitter to basically try to push for more and more democracy in the Arab world. Also, um, Twitter, Facebook, obviously, a huge success. Um, doing, it's doing okay. It's doing okay. But uh, Snapchat, all these other different ways of communicating and social media tools, who would have ever thought 10 years ago that we would be such a social world? It's crazy. Social media. Slowly bringing down your self-esteem, yes, it is. But it still uh, makes you feel like you have thousands of friends. Just don't read the comments and you'll be fine. Yeah. 
You know what I've been doing a lot lately because one of my favorite sites, uh, I'm not going to name the name of the site, but it rhymes with Bland's, Blamazon. Um, oh, so Jamazon. Yeah, Jamazon. Yeah. And um, I cannot tell you how much I love reading the comments from people that have purchased things. It is amazing. Um, I just can't get enough of their comments. It brings me such joy. Back to the social media conference from, a, what, 2009? 2014. I think it was 14. 2014. Here's some original music for Social Media Day. Mm. Ooh. Wait till the, the drop. You got to hear the drop. Ooh. Where's the guy? Here we go. He's coming out. Here's the drop. Social. <laughs> here we go. Here we go. Everyone. Social. Social. Oh, love it. One of my, honestly, one of my favorite songs. We used to play this a lot before you got here, Jeff. This was like our theme song. Let's get social. So I heard "Let's Get Social," and to me, I was thinking uh, <laughs> Olivia Newton-John. No, yeah. Let's here. get social. No, not social. quite. No, I don't think that's the words. I don't think. Let's get physical. I think it is. Yeah. I'll post this. The, the amazing thing about this performance is the effort they put into the lyrics. Yeah. If you listen to music today, some, you get to the chorus, they just repeat the same three words over and over <laughs> like four times, and, and that's the chorus. Like well, the actually, the chorus of this is also three words well, long. Know, Let's get social. It just seems, and then and then you hear songs, and mainly it's just like people saying like ooh, ooh or yeah. making a noise of some kind instead of actually words. There's verses it's oh, in yeah. depth they're trying to figure out how to incorporate you, all you the different see. types of social media into the song here we go social that guy's in the background <laughs> hey, wait the one more time here it comes pump it up <laughs> and i think the guy i think the guy is like the he's the association the social media association like founder yeah. looks like her dad could it, be it might be but but this song um this was from 2014? That's what it said. No way. What's it say on the... Yes! So get social. The, the, Everybody so, in the audience is three, like, uh, Three years okay. ago, though, three year, even if this was three years ago, this is, this is still on the cutting edge side oh, yeah. of social media. Absolutely. Uh, it's going to go down in history. One of the greatest ever. Uh, so we'll, we will be celebrating Social Media Day all day today. Uh, again, sending you to our Twitter page at Dr. Matt Show. He just put on a, a hat and sunglasses. Oh yeah, no, that's where they. That, yeah, that's the dress up part. It's it's just kind of one of those. If you've ever been to an association meeting, <laughs> where you know they hand out their awards and that you go every year and you have your chicken dinner. This was the big highlight of that event, and probably oh. I don't know, probably had four hundred, not even four hundred forty people. Somebody, yeah, one of the employees in the audience is like, "We're getting paid for this, right?" We're getting paid to be here, aren't we? Yeah. I believe they paid to be at the event. That, oh, that's cool. It's one of those <laughs> events that you don't care that you get to go to simply because it's out of town and you're staying in a hotel. Okay. So you'll go. And yeah. And then you'll go and you'll get a little grab bag and go to every booth. And, <laughs> um, today we're also going to be talking with an expert on the speed of corporate shame. So do you remember the United Airlines story where they're pulling a passenger off the airplane and then all of a sudden – a hundred million Twitter, uh, well, Chinese Twitter fans. They have a different uh, 
social media site in China other than Twitter. Yeah. Um, are beating up United Airlines. It's the fastest viral sensation all through China and the rest of the world. So the speed of corporate shame, what happens when your corporation or your company makes a big mistake? Volkswagen, Wells Fargo has been beat up in the, in the world now. Pepsi had a little issue with a Kardashian. Now, all of a sudden, your company can be brought to its knees. Hundreds of millions of dollars of uh, market cap can be lost simply because you make a mistake. You can't afford to make mistakes anymore, it looks like, in corporate America. We'll be talking about that. Plus, of course, some empty news, uh, some of what we call the Matt Townsend news, maybe the news you didn't know you needed to know. But it's still interesting nonetheless. And uh, we'll get to all of that. But first to Terry South with the headlines. Terry, what do we need to be focused on? Two San Antonio police officers were wounded in a shootout with a suspect on a street just north of the city's downtown section. One of the officers was left in what's been called grave condition and is not expected to survive, a spokesperson said. One of the two suspects also wounded in the Thursday afternoon shootout later died. The other suspect was taken into custody. Police chief William McManus said the incident started during a pedestrian contact. He said the two officers were patrolling the neighborhood when they spotted two people with whom they wanted to speak. McManus said the officers were immediately fired upon when they stepped out of their car. Oh, boy. Horrible situation there. Other uh, report, a police report released Thursday by authorities in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida, said that tennis star Venus Williams, we were talking about her the other day, caused a a car accident on June 9th that led to the death of a 79-year-old passenger in the other vehicle. Witnesses told the officers that Williams ran a red light and a Hyundai Accent smashed into her Toyota Sequoia. She says there were other factors involved, but uh, the accident is under investigation. But you hear a story like that, that could be any of us, any time, any day. And again, kind of the speed of corporate shame, but the speed of celebrity shame as well. They're saying no no evidence of drug or alcohol at the time of the incident, so they're just saying it may may just been a driver error at some point, but it's being investigated. Californians no longer will face losing their driver's license because of an unpaid traffic fine starting next month. Governor Jerry Brown said the punishment doesn't help the state collect unpaid fines Mm. and can send low-income people into a cycle of job loss and more poverty. Brown approved the uh, provision as part of a series of bills he signed Tuesday to enact the state budget. It will prevent courts from suspending someone's driver's license simply because of an unpaid fine. Opponents of the policy have argued driver's license suspension is a useful tool to compel people to pay the fines. Supporters say losing the ability to drive to work can prevent people from earning money and actually be able to pay the fine. That's so true. And then they get stuck in this hole. You got to have the money to pay, so you got to go to work. You need your car. Well, and again, that's that's a pretty progressive move. Uh, it is coming from California, but right. also a state that needs revenue. Absolutely. So that that was a way to strong arm revenue. But interesting. And finally, Rob Lowe says he thought he was going to be killed during an encounter with a Bigfoot creature while filming his new A and E docu series. Lowe tells Entertainment Weekly the encounter took place in the Ozark Mountains, which stretched between Arkansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma. Lowe said he and his sons were camping there to investigate a Bigfoot-like creature known to locals as a wood ape during a shoot for his uh, show called That's The Low That's what they call Files. me at home. When something began to approach their camp, Lowe says he was lying on the ground thinking he was going to be killed. He adds that he is fully aware the story makes him sound like some crazy Hollywood kook. Yes. Yes. Yes, it does. Bing! <laughs> totally. But he, he he thought he saw a Sasquatch. Yeah. Or big wood ape. That's true. Your your kids call you, hey, where's that big wood ape, mom? 
Well, they do watch a lot of Peppa Pig, and those kids are always talking about how big their daddy's tummy is. I think that's a, <laughs> that's a password or something. Is that where that comes from? Yeah, and so they're always telling me, Daddy has a big belly, and I always get offended, but then I have to remember that it's from Peppa Pig. See, and I had no idea that existed. My kid tells me that all the time. Yeah. Really? Yeah. He also is very intrigued by the book he got from the library that has the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles teaming up with Bigfoot to fight the bad guys. What? Yeah, really odd. That You mean with Wood Ape? Or, or Wood Ape, if, depending on your regional <laughs> yeah, designation. depending on where you're. I, as a scout, I, I honestly, this is not, I'm not making jokes here. I don't know what we called him back. Sasquatch is what we called him. I don't know. In Utah, you call the Wood Ape. Sasquatch. Is that what it is? I'm pretty sure. Oh, yeah. Isn't his real name Louis Armstrong? No. That's Satchmo. Is oh, okay. It? Satchmo. Yeah. Um, I was on a scouting trip where we spent all night trying to catch snipes. Mm-hmm. By the way, chasing them. I was so, so you close. Yeah. I was so close. I never could get one. Right. But then went to bed. And as we were going to bed, we'd, we'd also been talking about Sasquatch. And he came running down the mountain. Mm. And I promised – I was an 11-year-old scout. And right then, right that very second was the moment I started hating scouting. Wow. Interesting. Because who would put an 11-year-old boy whose parents had been divorced <laughs> through Not that? Funny. And then I, I literally buried myself to the bottom of my bag. Wow. Think, and I heard him running around our camp. Mm. And kids were screaming. It was crazy. I think you're crazy. Hey, wood ape. <laughs> Your kids, what's the name? Of, they, they, they say you have, the show they is Fat a, Gut? No, the show is called Peppa Pig. But they, uh, yeah, daddy has a big, t- or a fat tummy, or, See, yeah, but, they're British, so. But my kids were telling me I had a fat tummy, and they never watched a show. Hmm. It's kind of weird. It's rude. Kind of awkward. Uh, okay, we got a great uh, topic coming up. We're going to be getting into this idea of the speed of corporate shame. What happens to corporations now when employees make mistakes, when the the entire organization has made a major public faux pas or mistake, and now they're being brought down on, by social media because of the mistake? It's a, it's a big deal, and companies need to be careful. Stick with us. We're learning how to uh, live in this new social media world. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, with today being Social Media Day, uh, it, it seems to be like the perfect segue into our next guest and topic. So what happens when a company's reputation takes a hit? And with social media, with uh, the ability for your customer to now pull out his iPhone and shoot the biggest mistake your company has ever made and then get it online and then tweet it out and make it viral – Boy, oh boy, the speed of corporate shame is taking off. We see stories of uh, of corporate shaming with United Airlines when they pulled a, a, a paying passenger off in a fairly brutal way in Chicago. When uh, you see this, uh, the, the issue with Volkswagen and their emissions standards and the cheating there, the impact that had on the company and and the and really the 
the fees and penalties they're paying, Wells Fargo. A lot of these companies are taking a hit. So we wanted to to talk to an expert. Andrew Winston is joining us. He's an expert on how companies can navigate and still even you know manage the social challenges and, and kind of the environmental pressures that are that are being placed on companies um, today that that uh, they're experiencing today. Andrew is a globally recognized expert. And uh, he's he's going to walk us through this. Andrew, thank you so much for being with us today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. It's a really it's an amazing thing. I in a way I I really like uh, not necessarily the shaming side of what happens to you like a United Airlines, but it seems to have leveled the playing field, where now a customer has more power than even purchasing power. Yeah, there's. I mean, it's I I, I keep being amazed. I guess at, at the fact that. Um, companies are, are still figuring out that everybody has a video camera yeah. with them. Um, I mean, so, you know, just for context, you know, my work is is with uh, companies on corporate sustainability, on managing environmental and social challenges for profit, how they kind of understand the world's mega trends. But one of the kind of big themes in, in, in my work and the consulting I do with companies is around transparency and um, and the openness that the kind of world expects now. And that's Everything from, you know, how are your products made, you know, who made them, where did they come from, what's in it, to, you know, how do you operate, what are your values, what are your principles. And, and now, you know, anything you do um, that, isn't, that isn't kind of meeting with what your, your customers or even your own employees expect of you can, can just show up around the world instantly. It's, it's kind of remarkable. Oh, it really is. It, Moves. What where what companies what examples have you seen uh, this speed of shame the speed of corporate shame uh, moving the fastest where have you seen some of the most obvious examples Well yeah I think I mean I think you you guys reached out to me and, and said hey let's talk about this because of uh, you know an article I wrote a, you know weeks ago about there was this one you know couple of days where all of a sudden these these you know few corporate kind of missteps all hit at once and there was you know the United thing you mentioned and. Uh, you know that was just you know incredibly bad form by a by a company mismanaging um, a lot of aspects of, of that interaction with a with a you know paying customer that was just trying to get on a plane. Um, but the other thing that happened within like 24 hours was the the, the Pepsi ran this uh, ad, uh, and and it's kind of part of a, a broader movement again, kind of back to the role of business and society and how companies move through society that, you know, Pepsi was trying to say something good, I think, about connection and about, um, you know, uh, the role of um, understanding. And, and so they put out this ad with Kendall Jenner, um, you know, where the, she's handing a Pepsi to this police officer during protests, and somehow it solves all of our social and, and racial problems by this Pepsi. And, and, you know, I think it's just not a time. Oh, were you there, Andrew? Where that is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry, we lost you for just a second. Uh, what were you okay. saying? It's it's about it's about time. Yeah, I think I think th- this is not the time now where where uh, people have a lot of tolerance for kind of playing with the idea of of tolerance or or racial unity if if they're kind of not on you know on message or really understanding what they're saying. And the ad just struck a really strange note. Um, if if people didn't see it. It came out, and then it was pulled by Pepsi within 24 hours. I mean, I've, I've almost never heard of anything <laughs> yeah. happening with a, a national ad getting pulled kind of immediately. Um, and it just struck people as just having a really odd note of 
showing these protesters almost like partying in the street. It looked more like a Mardi Gras mm-hmm. march than, than a you know, <laughs> Black Lives Matter protest. And then she comes out, and she's this famous person, and she hands a Pepsi to a cop. And it just it was a very odd take on kind of unity and connection that, that just struck a lot of people as really misplaced. Oh, it's so um, true. But, 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 but to contrast it, like in the 70s, Coca-Cola had, you know, I'd like to give the world a Coke right. and, you know, kind of a peace movement I, movement, and, and it worked then. Is it – are we just a different – are we just a different populace? Are we just a different, a, a less tolerant what, – what is it do you think? Or, or maybe is it we're less trusting of corporate America? Well, I think it's all of that. I mean, I, you know, well, I mean, there's a few different aspects of it. I think the ads, you know, that, that you're talking about, the you know, I'd like to teach the world to sing was was a different. It was a different time, right? It was coming out of the '60s and '70s, and uh, but it was more just about everybody singing, everybody's in harmony. It wasn't, you know, really showing. True. Uh, it wasn't you know, walking that, into a protest, right? Yeah, it was. I mean, there was a, this was a very specific angle on things. While there's people. Um, having very real um, uh, concerns and anger and, um, you know, real deep-seated issues as there's been this relationship between the police and, and the black community that has gotten very ugly and, um, and, and for good reason. And to kind of light, to take light of that was, was just, again, very, very odd. Mm. And I think it was one of those things where I just wondered about, you know, the corporate decision-making. And I actually, I've said this, you know, I've talked about this, this you know, incident or this, this ad in a lot of settings, and I've said, you know, I don't actually, I think Pepsi was um, well-intentioned. Yeah, you know, sure. The company trying to connect to something, and, and it's more interesting in a way to ask why do companies increasingly feel the need to say something about big social issues? And if you go back a few months before the Pepsi ad, there was this, this during the Super Bowl this year, something very unusual happened, and there was a series of ads that were about social issues, about multiculturalism, immigration, um, if you remember, there was an Audi ad about, you know, little girls and how they grow up to not make as much as their peers and what do I tell my daughter. And, and this was the Super Bowl, right? This wasn't some niche, yeah. you know, discussion of social responsibility. This is the number one, uh, you know, setting for advertisement in the world. And all these big companies said, we want to use our time at the, whatever, three million for 30 seconds. We want to use our time to connect and talk about some big social issue that we want to have a, you know, a stake in or have a position on. I think we're just in a different time. Companies are stepping up to kind of take a role in society, and I think there's a lot of reasons for it. it the expectations of them are arising from their own employees, from customers. I think they're filling some gaps that the, the government is not filling. Um, they're actually fighting some battles against the government. You know, like when the first uh, you know, refugee ban was proposed by the president, a bunch of tech companies filed legal briefs and a bunch of others signed public statements saying this isn't in keeping, you know, with, with how we run our business or our values. Mm. Um, the same thing's been happening on LGBT rights, on climate change. You got really big companies kind of publicly saying we're not in step with where the government is on this. You um, also – And that's new. No, it, it's totally new. And you also see um, – you, you see companies – uh, like when it, when Bill O'Reilly was getting in trouble, it really was it was these big corporations pulling their ads from Bill O'Reilly that that probably led you know directly to his demise. Um, and then Kathy Absolutely. Griffin, kind of because these actors are and Hollywood types are just 
they're just they're corporate they're basic corporations right they're they're images they're entities and sometimes like when Kathy Griffin went out and and did her commercial I don't know what she was doing but hold up held up a decapitated right. head of President Trump boy that had backlash and she's now saying yeah. she's losing it so I mean I guess part of this is there's almost needs to be a new sensitization to what corporations can do what you know, actors can do what yeah. your limits are. Well, yeah, I mean, I, well, there's a, I mean, you could have a really interesting argument about or discussion about, you know, corporations versus actors or artists. I mean, Kathy Griffin is a comedian. Comedian, right? for and an artist. Sake. Yeah. And, and so they, their job in the world is to push buttons. They have the, you know, the great thing about the, you know, the First Amendment is they have the right to say whatever and people don't have to enjoy it and can, you know, and can also say that was disgusting or we don't agree with that. Um, you know, but as you said, there's, there's kind of a business side to her existence, right? Yeah, getting right. paid to be, you know, on CNN on New Year's or, you know, getting paid to do, you know, uh, comedy, you know, gigs, whatever, that her business can take a hit. I mean, that's the risk for, for an artist. It's a little different, you know, something like, I mean, the issues of, you know, Bill O'Reilly were like, you know, a media yeah. um, semi-anchor personality, you know, involved in sexual harassment. I mean, there's like real legal concerns, and, and some would argue, why did it take so long? I mean, why did it take until companies pulled ads mm-hmm. for his company to do something about it or to say this is not acceptable? Exactly. So there's, you know, there's pressure on all sides on this to yeah. say, like, what is, you know, what, what's your responsibility here as, as a company with your employees, especially big public-facing employees? Well, and, and especially because, uh, and I don't know, I'm not into the whole O'Reilly thing as much, but... Uh, these boycotts, you know, boycott the brand because they support a, a Rush Limbaugh or whatever. The, right. These companies also make big money on an O'Reilly and on because yeah. and they're advertising there for a reason. And it's it is interesting to see how slow they pull out of certain you know situations like this. So some of this, I guess, is and this is what I know you consult with companies on. It's we've got to figure out because the speed of shame is so immediate. Um, do you feel like companies know what they're doing? Uh, when United Airlines had their big uh, problem, their CEO came out and, as you put it, um, uh, used a euphemism, an awful euphemism for violently pulling someone off a plane. This was the quote that the CEO said. This is an upsetting event to all of us here at United. I apologizing for having to reaccommodate these customers. <laughs> so it's it almost right yeah. there. It just showed again the ignorance of – the the C-suite on what to do mm-hmm. with this event. And then even a few days later, another video of a United Airlines person, I guess, pushing down an older passenger or a, anyway. So yeah. what what advice are you giving these companies? And are they well, getting it? Um, yeah, I think they're getting it pretty – you know, they're getting it in some sense now. I mean, because they're seeing these things happen. Yeah, there is the, kind of this corporate speak. And, I mean, who knows if it's related to just where we are as a culture, where we are, where we have, you know, politicians all the way up to the, you know, the president saying kind of anything that comes to mind on Twitter. You know, everything's kind of, you know, we're in an era of all id. Um, And so people expect, I guess, you know, kind of much more honest statements, um, you know, and that corporations, they're just in a position now where I think they've been, so careful they have big legal departments that say okay before we put out a statement let's 
let's be careful. So they'll use the phrase reaccommodate. You know, they're, they're doing these strange phrasings that people are just finding to be um, unnatural, right, and, right. And, and not authentic. And so there's this, this kind of desire for, for, you know, corporate leaders to speak like people um, and, and come out and kind of under, and also just think through kind of the human aspects of the decisions that they make. You know, we've, we've <laughs> I think, well, I mean, air travel has its own unique ability to make us feel like cattle, you know. I mean, I, hmm. I travel a lot, yeah. and it's, it's not the most humanizing experience. Um, you know, I think there's, there's just a lot of competing pressures on companies. It's a really, it's a really tough time in a lot of ways to, to be a big multinational. You know, but before you have too much sympathy, remember, it's also a time where the, the, the very top people are making more money than any time in history right. by a lot, right? So I kind of feel like if you're going to get 15, 20 million a year to be the CEO, then you got some tough things to do, but, you know, you're getting paid a lot to, hmm. to try to figure those issues out. That's and right. How do you act like a human? How does your company treat its people internally and externally like people? Um, and what's your story? What's the story you're telling? That's, that's kind of the, the bottom line is, is, you know, in essence, you as a brand, as a company, you're telling a story all the time. And what it, does that story say? It's so true. And, and that's why I think you're perfect to, to be helping us with this because, again, your background – in uh, in you know environmental issues and environmental and and, and kind of green movements and because corporations have been you know sharpening their teeth on those issues for a while anyway so let's do this let's take a break we'll come back and continue the discussion with Andrew Winston author of the books Green to Gold and the Big Pivot as we talk about the speed of corporate shame. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us is Andrew Winston. He is the author of the books Green to Gold and The Big Pivot and also um, is uh, a founder of an organization um, that, that is working day in, day out to, to, to basically help organizations understand, in many cases, um, understand about uh, you know becoming more eco-friendly, becoming more environmentally um, sound, but also helping companies deal with this radical, transparent uh, world we live in now. It used to be that you could go produce your goods, you know, behind closed doors, locked down. No one's going to be shooting video of what's happening behind the scenes. But now uh, th- times have changed. And uh, so Andrew uh, Winston joins us. He is uh, His company is called – he's the founder of Winston Eco Strategies. And you can find out more at his website, andrewwinston.com. Andrew, thanks again for being with us. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. This um, – it really is true. Like uh, all of the sudden you've got – there's social issues. There's political issues. There's all these agendas that are that, – that, that we have to kind of take care of because the people that are buying our products want and expect certain things. How um, – what advice do you give? I know in The Big Pivot you talk uh, – you, you give some great advice about how to move forward in this you know uber-transparent world. What are some of the little uh, pieces of advice that you give the companies you consult with? Well, I mean, a lot of it is about, you know, getting a, kind of getting a handle on the, the world's megatrends, like what's expected of companies and starting to really understand how it's shifting and shifting pretty dramatically. 
Um, you know, in the in the book, I focus on a few, uh, in particular, the the you know climate challenge and what's expected of companies to kind of look at their their carbon footprint and how they're managing their energy use, and and that's changing dramatically right now. Um, just resources in general, how companies use stuff and and use it around the world, and their supply chains, what goes on in their supply chains, and just again this this uh, you know level of transparency um, and understanding better what your the world around you, your stakeholders want to know. Um, I see more and more companies obviously keeping an eye on social media, seeing what's being said about them, about the ingredients they use or the ways they do business or just, you know, issues that could affect their business. I mean, I, I you know, I, I did some research with CEOs uh, in, in the last year and, you know, talked to one big food and beverage CEO and, you know, he said that it used to be that a, a product was good if it if it tasted good and was safe, like that was kind of it. And now he said it has to be responsibly and um, and sustainably, you know, uh, sourced, manufactured, and distributed. And that's a really big difference, and totally. has a, a lot of different aspects to it that companies need to get a handle on. There's a whole bunch of skills there um, and capabilities that they they don't always have. And um, and in this uh, transparent world, you make a mistake on sourcing, on developing, on um, marketing it. I mean, and we've got a story for almost every one of them, right? Like Volkswagen yeah. may not have may, they may not have marketed the cars ethically. Uh, Wells Fargo didn't market them ethically either. Yeah. I mean, at some point, and then you hear the stories of, uh, you know, the manufacturers of our phones or other devices in countries or tennis shoes in countries with child workers and child laborers. It really, I guess, is showing us, though, that we're, we're expecting a higher standard of morality from our, right. from our companies. Well, that's right. I mean, it's funny, the examples, that, you know, the big corporate misdeed examples in the last year or two of, you know, like, as you mentioned, of VW and, and Wells Fargo, I mean, those are a little different in a way because those are just fraud, yeah. right? I mean, it's, it's just illegal. VW just lied yeah. and just said, you know, our cars burn cleaner than they do, and Wells Fargo just made up accounts, um, you know, and that was like a culture they had created where, you know, but again, I think it all comes back to kind of the pressure on companies. Like, why do companies end up in these situations? You could say they have a horrible culture or something, but, you know, there's just in, this intense pressure on quarterly earnings, on, on, you know, growth at all costs. I mean, there's just this, this very narrow definition of what success of a business looks like, and it drives some, and sometimes more than we'd like to think, to do really kind of dumb and immoral things. Hmm. Um, but, but, you know, it's not just, yes, it's the right thing to do to avoid these kinds of behaviors or to look at your environmental footprint. But my work is really around how it's good for your business, and, and, and good for your business for lots of reasons. You can save money, you can reduce risk, you can innovate and create better products and services and, and protect your brand. I mean, all, you know, all you have in a lot of ways is your reputation in the world, and it's worth an immense amount to most companies. Um, and that's, that's what's really da- damaging about these things, is your reputation can get hurt in an instant um, if you do something or any one of your employees does something that's really outside the bounds of what what people expect. So true, and I mean, and the idea that it, it's not just it's not you're you're not just trying to fix it so you don't bleed out. You're saying this is actually going to this is this is additive. This is going to produce and and, and generate more business for you. Well, yeah, I mean, it depends on which you know which set of topics that fall under the kind of corporate sustainability banner. I mean, there's a lot of things like reducing your 
your energy use or waste that just save money, you know, really quickly and just, you know, are, are good for the business immediately. There's others that take more investment and take more time and, you know, kind of guiding your innovation or thinking differently about your products and services based on, uh, you know, what you think customers are, are going to want over time. I mean, you know, if you look at the, the you know, we can go back to Pepsi again. I mean, they, they do this ad. They're trying to connect with people. But at the same time, they're doing all sorts of good work on, on their, you know, energy sourcing and on the content of their products. They've, they've set, you know, goals like a lot of the food and food and beverage companies on reducing sugar and salt and, and creating more healthy products. I mean, that's the core of what they do, right, yeah. is make things that we eat and drink. Um, they can have missteps on their ads and on their branding, but it's really about what are they, what kind of stuff are they putting into the world? And and you know, companies like that have been moving pretty aggressively to provide people with better products. Yeah, um, and I think that's because that's where the demand's coming, right? People want to consume less, you know, sugar drinks, and uh, and they want healthier food, and they, you know, so they're they're trying to get ahead of of what they you know, see customers wanting. Yeah. So it's up to all of us too. You know, we have to kind of change what we demand. Of exactly. Not, you know, do you think react to our needs, what, what percentage of this or what part of this is simply a lot of the, because the fact that these companies are so enormous, I mean, right. and, and they've, they've kind of moved beyond the folksy mission that really drives to the, the heart and soul of every employee. I mean, if you have a hundred thousand employees, you could see how, you know, even in the C-suite, they may feel a, a desire to, you know, serve fellow man or whatever, a very, a very noble purpose. But meanwhile, you've hired a marketing company to put together a commercial that kind of missed the boat. Um, how, how much of this is just because of size? And, and can you really uh, expect to have such a tight handle on everything when you are so big? Yeah, it's a, it's, look, it's a really good point, and, and that's part of it is that companies have gotten so big the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. Right. I mean, part of the question I've had about that, you know, that Pepsi ad is, is that, you know, where in all the steps, before you, you spend millions on an ad and run it everywhere, there's a lot of people that had to have seen it um, along the way from the marketing and ad agency to the marketing people internally. How did nobody kind of raise their hand and say, there's something not quite right about this? Yeah, <laughs> you know? it's interesting, and, huh? And the same thing with... Same thing with VW, right? I mean, how many engineers had to have seen something that, that said, okay, wait, what are we doing? We're, yeah, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that doesn't make sense. And so you need a culture, obviously, that allows, you know, whistleblowers, maybe a strong word for it, but allows people to speak up. But, you know, look, there are examples, obviously, of companies that even really large have developed, say, innovative cultures like Apple and Google or, or you know, cultures of, you know, service like at Disney. You know, you don't... You don't run into many Disney employees way down the ranks in a park who aren't, you know, doing what they're supposed to, right? right. Who aren't serving people. So, like, there are companies clearly that, that create cultures. But, yeah, it is, of course, it's difficult when you get really, really big. But that's kind of when you need – that's when you rely on culture more than anything, right? I mean, you have to have, you know, this, this kind of deep kind of belief throughout the organization that – what I'm supposed to do is is X, and I will be rewarded for that, or that's what's expected, and not kind of the secret thing, which mm-hmm. is, you know, like at Wells Fargo, the question is, why did all these, you know, guys, middle managers kind of think, I'm, I got to create fake accounts? Like, they, it wasn't them, in a way, you know? No, right. <laughs> it was, why did they believe that that was what was, you know, going to really be rewarded? Right. Um, and, that's true. You know, and, and I guess it was for a while. 
And I guess that gets to – we always talk on the show about – there's a Gallup poll out about uh, engagement of employees and how you know 70 percent of employees are, are disengaged to some degree. Yeah. And I mean it makes you wonder if – because the transparency is one thing to have a bunch of outsiders that can you know film you pulling someone off an airplane. But it gets a little scarier when you can have insiders – yeah. Uh, that are disengaged and starting to be frustrated with the company, and they're turning on you too. Absolutely. I mean, look, there's more and more people, you know, blogging and and posting to Instagram, and and, and you have a generation, obviously, the, the millennial generation, that's basically come into the adult world in a technology era, right? The iPhone's been around for ten years. Yeah. So if you're, you know, 25 to 30, this has been your whole adult life, and. Uh, and the millennials are now uh, approaching, I think, 50% of the global workforce over the next few years. Um, you know, they're not as young as they were. They're, in, they're into their 30s, a lot of them, um, and getting more and more kind of say in companies. But they're, they're coming in with kind of a, just a different view of um, connectivity and what you share and um, how you use technology. It's just, you know, it's just a different, a different view on it. Mm. And I think they're just going to expect much more openness even from within within companies and they there's much less hierarchy i you know i find culturally and in, in, you know when yeah. i talk to companies about their millennial workers they'll approach the ceo or senior people and just talk to them much more it's just it's there's much less kind of structure in their minds and they expect a more open conversation i think that's all you know for the good for, for yeah. companies no, i agree um, yeah. by the way because pepsi had their you know their hiccup but it seems like they also handled it so much better than United Airlines did. So, well, or, yeah. or did they? What what did they? Because it didn't seem to be as as impactful as the Delta Airlines, and maybe it was just because it was the, the difference um, of a commercial versus a live yeah. video. But United. Or sorry, United, yeah, not United. Delta, let's not get in trouble yeah, yeah, Delta, yeah, exactly. United. United Airlines. Talk about. I mean, is is there in the end? Is there is there just a better way? To handle this transparent world, so that well, we don't, look, so it doesn't I mean, turn to shame. Yeah, you know, you have to handle mistakes. I mean, the way you do as a as a human, as a person, right? I mean, it comes back to what I was saying before. Like, you know, when, when did we kind of get to this point where companies don't have to act kind of in a way as as people would? I mean, they've been given the rights of of people. Look, I work with companies. I'm a I'm a business guy. Yeah, but you know, we we've We've gone pretty extreme with the Citizens United decision by the Supreme Court that companies basically have free speech. You know, if you're going to have the rights of individuals, then why wouldn't you have the responsibilities? And, and you know, as individuals... Oh, we lost you again. Are, are oh, kind of, sorry, again, we lost you just of, for a minute, Andrew. Uh, sorry about that. Oh, I don't know good. what the connection issue yeah. is. You know, I, I'm, as, a, as a person in the world, if you make a mistake, you know, everyone knows you're supposed to kind of look someone in the eye, apologize. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, and move on. I mean, we don't... We're kind of losing that in our culture, frankly. I mean, we have political leaders like the president who doesn't apologize ever for anything, um, and and that's kind of part of the brand of, of folks like that. But it's really distasteful. So you true. Know, you want people who can say, "Hey, there's mistakes in the world," um, um, you know. And I think companies need to need to do that too. But there's such a legal concern, right? I mean, you know, lawyers are you know for good reason often saying to their corporate executives, "You can't can't go out and take." blame or credit or anything for, for this. Um, but look, Pepsi, you know, it was, a, it was a different situation. Again, I think they came from a, you know, generally a decent place of like, we're trying to, we're trying to support connection in the world and peace and harmony. 
And um, and once they got this backlash, they're like, okay, that really didn't play well. Let's <laughs> let's take this off the market, and you know, and apologize. And United, yeah, I mean, their first the first couple interviews with the CEO just they they were awful. <laughs> you know, was yeah. this like defensiveness? And my employees did exactly the right thing, and this is the this is the rule. And it's like, but just step back for a second. You know, there's a fairly elderly gentleman that got beat up by. It turns out by like I think it was the um, the airport kind of police force uh-huh. um so there's a whole there's a whole element of this that's kind of like ties into the kind of level of police violence going on in the country too but united you know brought them in called them in because someone wasn't a pa- patient a passenger wasn't doing what they wanted and i kind of watched those videos and thought where's the crew where's the captain yeah where's the captain right, right. i mean like that's on the ground that's the lead representative of your company right and the and the person responsible for keeping people alive and well on planes. And, you, and, and you've had that experience when you've seen it, I'm, too, I'm sure, too, just being on the plane so much. Man, when the captain walks out of the cockpit, it's a whole different ballgame. Like, when you, when you, you know when you get him to have to get up and go to the, don't make me get the captain. Uh, it's so true. And where was he? Where was the rest of the culture that was sitting there watching it? What would allow people to think that cops could just go do that? Um, especially to a paid customer with a seat that was paid for. Anyway, interesting stuff. Uh, Andrew, I wish we had so much more time to talk about it. Andrew Winston is his name. You're going to want to go check him out on his website, andrewwinston.com, and also his uh, new book, The Big Pivot, which is going to help organizations get through this uh, crazy transparent time. That uh, It's great. I think it's great overall. It just is going to take some growing up by the, the companies. We'll take a break, folks. We'll be back. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball. Welcome back, friends. Uh, Again, great point by Andrew that companies need to basically, in a way, act like humans. And um, it's funny because he, in his article, he mentioned the speed of corporate shame and how fast we can shame a company now by just getting a viral message out about them. But uh, we've had on the show many times uh, people talking about the speed of trust. Stephen M. R. Covey wrote a book about that. But really, it's either going to have to be trust or shame. And shame tends to be a negative motivator. I guess in the end, it, it moves people to change. But shame in the long run also creates a lot of blowback. So what if we could just instead see ourselves as a company that needs to grow trust with our population with our population and with our clientele because when you have the trust everything seems to go a lot better a lot faster powerful stuff we'll take a break folks uh, this is the Matt Townsend show we're doing what we can to help you live longer love stronger lead healthier happier lives we'll be right back This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Happy Friday to you. You did it. You made it another week, you lucky dog. (laughs) You thought you couldn't do it. By golly, you did. And happy social media day to you. One of the great hits 
Let's get social. That's a it's a big hit. A lot of people don't remember it. I remember it when Olivia Newton-John did it. No, that was Let's Get Physical. Hmm. That was different. Well, but I think in uh, Denmark, it translated to Let's Get Social. Oh, I did not know that. I didn't realize social was such a big thing back then when Mm -hmm. when that song was popular. We, um, We we're celebrating social media. Nobody loves a selfie more than us. We just we can't get enough of them. My wife told me the other day that I need to do an Instagram – what's it called? The story? I don't know. I'm not in, on Instagram. But apparently you you make – you put together little stories and I just – because I have all these little weird thoughts throughout the day. And she's like, you got to just capture those weird thoughts and then just put them in a story. My, my thing with social media like Twitter and Instagram, uh, it's best to think before you act – and sometimes you need to just let things marinate a little bit before you put them out there instead of, yeah. you know, tweeting out every little thought that you have because most of those – it probably wasn't a good idea that you did that. Yeah. yeah you ought to censor a little bit. Like, get, get not, a little I don't have anybody s- in mind when no. I talk about this. OK. But, but you do. No. OK. Your word that, – that those were your words. Those were my Not words. mine. Yeah. You used the other words where you kind of danced around it. Anywho, um, I but I I don't want to talk to a camera to a phone. I don't want to do it. But my but my she's right. Marketing wise, it'd be great. But I'm uh, like, come on. You're probably talking through a phone right now. Oh, I am probably because somebody's listening to you on their app. And you can you can listen to our podcast if you go to the odd to the Apple Podcast button. The little pink button on your phone, you can download these things. Every one of our shows, you can download through iTunes. You can download it through Stitcher. Through you can go to the BYU Radio and download. Uh, you can go to the App Store and download the BYU Radio app for Apple or Android. We're everywhere. <laughs> you need is is that the sound for Android? Apple for Android. What's the, what's the Apple sound? Beautiful. What's the Android sound? Ha <laughs> ha! I got you. Here's the Samsung sound. Those phones, are, those phones are coming back, by the way. I know, with but new and improved. They're hotter than ever. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure how improved they are. I think they've removed whatever was catching on fire. See, I think their new so. logo or their new theme and uh, the new branding is Samsung 7. They're smoking hot. Get them while they're hot. <laughs> Just kidding. We love Samsung. Um all that we're going to be talking about um, as we as we move forward. More social media information throughout the day. Also, we will be getting into a couple of uh, life lessons in our empty news segment. For example, um, how not to lose a hundred thousand dollars accidentally to goodwill. There's some rules we'll give you. Hmm. One rule might be: don't put a hundred thousand dollars in cash in like a duffel bag that you might leave out and send to goodwill. Life lessons. Life lessons. And uh, we'll also give you some rules. If you have a 1,000-pound pig that you're trying to catch, we'll tell you how the police in Massachusetts were able to track one down. That would be a great barbecue, by the way. Yeah. Whew. Getting hungry already. And uh, if you're planning to have a child welfare check by the police department, we will teach you a little lesson about how not to have your toddler pull a loaded gun out of their toy box 
right in the middle of the welfare check. Yeah, wait until the visit is over. <laughs> Look what I've got. Life lessons. Here, right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, <laughs> that's why we do the show. We want to give you every chance that you can have to make life better. Plus, today we're also going to be talking about the fact of how we have all of these beliefs, these assumptions about how well we will remember something. Like, have you ever had somebody, I had somebody will last night? remember you. Did you know that you were doing that out loud? What? <laughs> Nothing. Um, have you ever noticed that you somebody is telling you something, you're like, oh, I want to remember that. And you might even feel confident you're going to remember it. And then an hour later, you forgot it. Like, Terry can't remember names. Actually, he remembered my son's name. You did yeah. not. Yeah, which is amazing. But we didn't test him if he did. Well, that wouldn't have been you know, beneficial because you were struggling to find the name, and the whole point was to figure out if you knew His it. No one cared if I did. Stanislav, but they call no. him Stas. See, you didn't even get that. I know. I wouldn't try the long version. Just go There's with only Stas. one of us that's been under anesthesia in the last week, okay. and that's me. Like I've been under anesthesia before. Yeah. Yours is worn off. Mine's still there. I, got, I can't remember. I mean, I spent well, an hour looking for my car yesterday. When I was eight years old... <laughs> Really? Yeah. Yeah, yours is probably worn off yeah. <laughs> by now. We're going to talk to a, a researcher about how what gets in the way of us predicting if we'll remember something or not. Because there's some myths that we believe improve our memory, and they actually don't. So, like, for example, if you listen to something with a louder volume, do you think you're more likely or less likely to remember it? Do you, or do you think volume even matters? I never even thought of turning the volume up on something to it, remember it more. It depends on how annoying it is. That, that what's interesting is if it is more annoying, you might think you're going to retain it more. Hmm. Like this is really – I got to remember this. I can't count on my memory, so I have to put you know, a million alarms on my phone. But yeah. then, of course, I have to remember to set the alarm, Yeah, which can be tough. That's a hard thing. You can always just tell Siri to do it. Um, so we'll be talking with a researcher about how to improve your, your memory and how to actually be able to predict better what you'll remember and what you won't so that you can then adjust your life to have a better memory. Uh, we'll get to all that fun. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, Cuomo Thursday declared a state of emergency for the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, the public corporation responsible for New York City's mass transit system because we are now beginning to see what happens when mass transit systems break down. The emergency declaration allows the state to expedite the allocation of funding and the initiation of repairs for the system that has been hampered by delays, derailments, and power outages over the past several months. People are very angry and they can't get to work. I can't get there. That's and then struggling. Jimmy Fallon keeps doing these impromptu concerts right in the middle. They need to maybe get a fund to block Jimmy Fallon from He's the subway. Ru- I know. He's ruining the subway, except he just made you two the coolest thing in the subway that year. Is that what it was? Yeah. All right. The fight, beat nearly, the fight began t- nearly 25 years ago in an epic legal tussle over their single word, Redskins. Yeah. But Thursday, after protests outside NFL stadiums, vows by sport journalists never to use the word, and even former President Barack Obama urging the team owner... To change the name, the battle has, as it says here, petered out. On Thursday, the five Native Americans uh, groups fighting the NFL over its trademark registration called it quits 
in federal appeals court. So did the Justice Department, which on Wednesday declared the team the winner. The Native Americans and Justice Department didn't have much of a choice. On June 19th, a separate case involving an Asian rock band, the Supreme Court declared that a key section of the federal law banning trademarks that may disparage people was a violation of the First Amendment. Oh, boy. So now the Washington Redskins are off the hook, and they can continue with their name. <laughs> Good. I mean, I guess. Whatever. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Wall Street was not hungry for Blue Apron. Do you know what Blue Apron is? Uh, well, I know. No, I don't. Is that the service where you get uh, meals delivered to your house? Yes. Uh-huh. I've, oh, I've, and then you have to make the meal. But they send all you all the food yeah. and it's ready to go. It's oh. actually kind of fun. So customers are upset about it? No, Wall Street. They they had Why? their IPO yesterday oh. and they didn't really people didn't really buy it. The meal kit company shares uh, need ended it, the unchanged Thursday, the first full day on the stock market. The stock rose as much as to ten percent after its debut, but it ended Thursday at ten dollars a share. Oh boy, that's the same as its initial public offering price. On Wednesday, Blue Apron lowered what is expected to be shares to sell for, a sign that the company had trouble attracting investors for its IPO. Blue Apron ships boxes to customers filled with all the raw ingredients needed to make home-cooked meals. Mm. It has many rivals. Yeah. HelloFresh, Plated, there's many, many more. Brown Apron. And there are concerns that competition to deliver groceries to people's doorsteps will only heat up after e-commerce giant Amazon purchased Whole Foods, and now they can just, you know, drop the food right in your neighborhood. Instead oh, of boy. having to get a ship through a, a shipping company. And you company. wouldn't have to make it? or I mean, come on. Well, would that appa- be? Apparently, Amazon has a meal-type program like that. We'll just ship you a box with your with your meal in it. I think they have employees go into your kitchen and cook it for you, too. Yeah. They're great people. At that point, when you just go to a restaurant? Yeah. Why not just eat out? But you have to wait for two days. But oh, don't yeah. you want a home-cooked meal? <laughs> With, from some guy you don't know that works for Amazon. And finally, fidget spinners. Oh, they're back. Lots of news on fidget spinners. They have been everywhere recently. First is a novelty gadget with claims about helping kids focus, then is a popular toy, taking over the classrooms and annoying teachers. But now, some may pose a fire hazard. Two mothers in Michigan and Alabama reported that their children's Bluetooth-enabled fidget spinners, yes, they make Bluetooth-enabled fidget spinners. Why? Okay. They have little speakers on them. You can play music as you spin. I don't know why, but that's what, that's the way they work. They burst into flames in the past few weeks. Both times the spinners were plugged into outlets where they were they were caught fire. So is these batteries just yeah, like the uh-huh. uh, hoverboards the hover and all board, those, yeah. the phones? Mm-hmm. They have these lithium ion lithium batteries. If the connections aren't right, which happens when they're not, you know, they're they're rushed through the manufacturing process. There's no safety inspections type. Mm-hmm. They're just shipped right to the kids, and then they blow up in the living room. Maybe that's a new. That's something we need to all think about. Do you need another device to plug into your house, really? Because the minute you're charging another thing, you do have a potential bomb on your hands. Period. I mean, we've had phones explode, hoverboards, and catch fire and burn down homes. Now we have fidget spinners. So before you buy one more thing that needs a charger... You might want to be careful. And the uh, Consumer Product Safety Commission says that they're investigating and it recommends consumers stay with the products while charging and avoid letting products charge overnight. So just sit there and watch it charging. Yeah. Hmm. Watch it. I like to... Or don't just plug it in and walk away for six hours. No, I always I always like to plug these things that are kind of, you know, not not like the main appliances of the home. Right. The tertiary appliances. I like to have an extension cord, and I put them in the middle of the lawn, mm. and then I, pl- I charge them out there. That's good. 
That's what I do. Or sometimes I actually plug it into the neighbor's power outlet. Yeah, just do it in their house. And I just do it over by their house. <laughs> I just found that to but be a lot easier. I have a couple sets of uh, Bluetooth headphones. I do too. And when I plug those in, I'm like, really? These are kind of small. Yeah. We're just going to plug them into the wall and leave them here for a while. And it's do you, kinda... I've never worried about mine catching on fire. That's Why interesting. Not? I don't know. But maybe maybe because I don't charge them overnight. I don't either. I charge them during the show. Ooh, right? I've yeah. been doing that. Yeah. I, I've just noticed that if, if you if you hold up whatever it is you're charging mm. and it's really warm yeah, and do. or pulsating, mm-hmm. I usually unplug it. That's right when I unplug it. Or on fire. Yeah, if you see if you smell smoke <laughs> Maybe want to unplug that. from your headphones, gotta watch out for that. Speaking of smoke from headphones, uh Goodwill returns ninety seven thousand dollars to an Ohio couple in a mistaken donation. Huh. Still working on our segues. Um, the couple has. No, that was good. That was solid. I like that. <laughs> I, I I can never tie it to our other stories. I think it's better not to try. Just do your. No, I, I like I like trying it. Yeah, yeah, okay. And why not try? Got to get good at something. Uh, the couple. Um, by the way, and I I don't know that I would like. Even if this happened to me, I don't know that I would want anyone to know about it. Uh, Goodwill Industries in Ohio um, initially thought that uh, somebody had donated a hundred thousand dollars. Right. Um, the, or they thought that actually they thought the money was counterfeit or mm. like play money. They found literally ninety seven thousand dollars in hundred dollar bills in a duffel bag inside a box of clothes last week. The duffel bag also contained legal documents and a handgun. No, just kidding. That's a Sopranos series. Yeah, um, <laughs> it is. The last uh, will and testament for Dan and Lynette Lacrone. So it was part of the will. It included the will and $97,000 cash. Hmm. After numerous messages from Goodwill went unreturned, the couple finally retrieved the money from the police department where Goodwill had taken it for safekeeping. Dan Lacrone says he withdrew the cash the couple had saved for a new home to deposit it in another bank. Hmm. And then somehow it ended up in Goodwill. Now, can you imagine what that does to your marriage? When your husband's like, hey, where's that duffel bag with our house money? What if that money was on the way to the Cayman Islands? Yeah. Is that, yeah, that, yeah, that's what you're saying. But I don't know that I would want people to know any of the details, let alone my name. Right. Because now they know you have $97,000. Yeah, and that's, a will. That's pretty that's impressive for the people at Goodwill who are probably making minimum wage oh, tell me that to turn it in. I think that it's interesting. The number was $97,000. It was $100,000, but now it's $97,000. <laughs> this is a little light. What happened, guys? <laughs> it's so weird. Anyway, good job to Goodwill in Ohio. That's a pretty cool story. Uh, if you are trying to um, – if you know that you're going to have a welfare check coming down the road with police – a little advice for you is uh, is coming out of Boynton Beach, Florida. A toddler found a loaded pistol in his My Little Learning toy box, and he pulls out a loaded pistol while the while the police were there investigating the home for possible child neglect. Unbelievable! Hmm. Three year old boy wanted to bring out his toys while the officers were home. He probably saw one of the cops' guns. He's like, "I've got one of those." Yeah, <laughs> he went into his toy box. It's crazy. Brought out a, a gun and uh, some and and some other books. Like, read me a book or I'll take you out. <laughs> but the officers were talking to the adult in the house. The toddler pulled out the 9mm pistol. One officer immediately took the gun and found that there was a bullet in the chamber. And the safety was off. Oh. 
needless to say, um, the visit did not go well. Did not go well, and uh, I'm, I'm sure that that would confirm the fact of possible child neglect. Unbelievable. Lucky for this beautiful baby or this child. Oh, are you kidding me? How many times have your kids come into your room wielding a knife, though? Like, look at this knife. Uh, never. Come on. I have. I do have a son that maybe not in your room, knife. but in the kitchen, they just pick it up and kind of wave it around, <laughs> and then you kind of have to grab it from them. No, mine don't do that. Really? That's probably a three-year-old thing. I, I when we when my kids were three, we never gave them knives. No, I didn't give them the knife. We never let. It was them, on the counter. They weren't and they able picked to access up. knives. I mean, don't get me wrong. We're not like, I don't want to be self-righteous here, but we, and we'd give them nunchucks. We'd give them other things like that. But we okay. Never, we All right. Yeah. I think you're lying. Okay. Anyway, folks, a little advice for all y'all. If you, if you have a health check coming up uh, with the police department, hey, check the baby's toy box. You never know what you'll find. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to be talking about how to improve uh, your memory and also how to, how to determine really how you think about memory and remembering things because that may lead to better memory stick with us we'll be back this is the matt townsend show Every day we make decisions based on how we think our memory will work, right? So, for example, a college student needs to figure out how much time to study or how to study in a way that they can remember all the things they're trying to learn. Or have you ever had to make a list or thought, okay, I'm going to go to the store. I've got to pick up three things or four things, and then the list kind of turns to six or seven things. But you didn't make the list. You didn't write it down because you just were sure you're, you'd, you'd, you can remember. How many times have you been sure you were going to remember something or honestly believed you would never forget something because it was such an amazing thing, and yet down the road, you forget it. You get to the store, you don't remember the fifth and sixth thing that were on the list. So joining us today to talk about memory and and really some of the illusions that that impact how well we predict how our memory will work for us, is Dr. David Frank. David uh, is a postdoctoral scholar at Case Western Reserve and is uh, soon to be an assistant professor at Texas A&M University in Commerce, and he studies metacognition, strategy use, and skill acquisition. Dr. David Frank, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. You wrote a wonderful article in theconversation.com talking about the illusions. Apparently, a lot of us are under, we're a little delusional, I guess. We're under, we're under the certain beliefs or assumptions about how memory works. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about what are some of those illusions. That's right. So there's uh, a number of things that have been shown that uh, people use whenever they're trying to figure out whether or not they're going to remember things. And you know, a lot of this uh, isn't necessarily an, an overly conscious process, uh, but we have a sense of, yeah, I think I'll remember that. No, I don't think I'll remember that. And something that uh, psychologists like myself have been trying to figure out is where does that sense come from? Where, why do people think they're going to remember certain things? And one of the tricks is if you can trick the system, if you can find uh, a cue or something that people are relying on that's inaccurate in a certain instance, um, then it'll tell you, it'll, it'll tip you off that that's, in fact, what they're using. Um, 
So uh, to explain this a little better, uh, one of the things that people has been presumed that people use is how easy it is to process information. Mm. And one of the reasons that people use this ease of processing, they think, is that it really relates to memory in a lot of ways. So, for example, if I've read something um, once before and I go back and read that same book again, the second time I read it, it's a little easier, it's a little faster to process. And lo and behold, the repetition of having read it twice is actually going to improve memory. So that feeling of being able to process something easily, in this case, the, the illusion is, is accurate. Um, I'm actually more likely to remember that. Likewise, if I am learning something that fits with some previous knowledge that I have, it's easy to incorporate the things I already know, that can make it easier to process. Um, that also makes it easier to remember, the more mm. we can relate to previous things. Uh, where it gets really interesting is when the system starts to break down. So it's been shown that people, if they're presented different words in different volumes, will erroneously think that the words that are presented in a loud volume are going to be easier to remember than those presented in a quiet volume. <laughs> Interesting. The people believe that? They, so that you're more likely to remember something because, you know, it was impactful and loud. You know, surprisingly, people do seem to, to believe this. Um, but, that, but that's an illusion, you're saying. That's actually not, that doesn't necessarily improve your memory. Right. There's very, very little impact whatsoever of volume on memory. As long as it's loud enough for you to hear, um, you're pretty, pretty in, uh, really doesn't matter much um, how likely you are to remember it if it's super loud or just barely loud enough. What if it's loud and I'm shaking you at the same time? Are you, more? you know, we haven't studied the violent aspect. <laughs> because it does, it does seem like, because like parents raise their voice to their kids, I guess, thinking it's going to make a bigger impact. But it, it's in, that might be really interesting to know that maybe yelling more at your kid may not make them remember it more. In my, in my personal experience, uh, yelling has had no impact yeah, right. on my children's it's memory. So true. Um, it may get their attention yeah. um, if they're if they're engrossed in say uh, an engaging TV show or video game. Um, but aside from that, once they're listening, no, <laughs> the, the volume the volume at which you give them the information has very little impact on their ability to remember it. It's but it, what I guess what's interesting behind all of this research, David, is that. There, we make very major assumptions or even minor assumptions about how we learn and how we work and how we remember. And some of those assumptions are dead on. Like, mm -hmm. you know, if, if it's easy and if it's repetitive, we might, we might remember it more. And some are way off. Absolutely. So, but, but people could actually be studying and trying to retain something in such, in such an ineffective illusion that they're just wasting their time. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's, there's definitely research supporting the idea that the more you know about how memory works, the more you can effectively study. Um, and yeah, if you have the illusion that, oh, this is really easy to follow, this is really easy for me to process, it's nice and clear, it can lead you to overestimate your ultimate memory. And I think that's an important cue that people need to be aware of, is uh, why does this seem so easy to process? Is it because I really understand it, or is it because the person presenting it is doing it in a very fluent and clear way? Um, and as great as it is to have an instructor who's very fluent and clear, um, it can lead to that illusion where you think you're learning more in their class than maybe you really are. Oh, interesting. 
So, so talk more. What are some other illusions that uh, are getting in the way? So there's, most of them center around this idea of fluent processing. So uh, if something's presented in a, large vault, in a large font or a really small font, people assume it just feels easier to process that large font, and they'll erroneously bump up their estimates of how likely they are to remember them um, <laughs> the larger the font is. And the same thing happens if it's a really clear font versus, say, an italic script. So we think if I'm watching a PowerPoint and the fonts of the PowerPoint are larger fonts, are we have an illusion that we're going to retain this more because it's clearer to us, but that illusion is false? Absolutely. And in fact, there's some research that suggests that a disfluent font, if it's really hard to read and you have to strain, can actually lead to better memory in some cases. Um, so we're really a little bit backwards in that if it's the perception of the actual perceptual information that's leading us to think that it's easy, um, we're actually a little backwards. The, the, the more we have to strain, the better we tend to remember it, um, even though we think it's the opposite. In the, in the moment, it really feels like, oh, I'm going to remember this. This is so easy. I, this, I've got this. Um, in reality, if you were struggling, you would be more likely to remember it. Isn't that interesting? Because it almost goes against marketing 101, you know, make a billboard easy, fewer letters, bigger fonts, easy to remember. They've only got so much time to pass it or whatever. But the reality is maybe a little bit more complicated of a concept is better. Yeah. I mean, assuming that the person is engaged in it. I mean, obviously, the right. billboard has to be large enough to see and to catch your attention. But yeah, once you have their attention... Getting people to think just a little bit more about it and put a little bit of cognitive effort in will actually boost memory, even if it feels to them like um, they're not going to, to remember it. Maybe, maybe it's a little difficult for them, but if you've got their attention, that difficulty can actually improve memory. Oh, interesting. Which, so there's something about the struggle. Um, there's something about the struggle then that, that increases retention. Versus the ease that, that decreases retention. Yeah, yeah. This has uh, been referred to as desirable difficulties, things that make studying and learning difficult, but ultimately lead to better memory and retention. Um, and it's been shown in, in a couple different ways, both with perceptual stuff, like, you know, we were looking at with volume, um, but it's also been shown for things like spacing out studying. So if you study everything in a big chunk, you, you learn it really quickly. The problem is you forget it really quickly. Hmm. Whereas if you space it out, learning is more effortful, and you will have to study more to get to the same level of learning, but then you're actually going to retain it. Um, so yeah, in a lot of ways, psychology is kind of converging on this idea that certain t uh, difficulties in learning and studying can actually um, be to our benefit, that uh, the, more, the more you have to try, the more you're going to get out of it. Well, and that's so interesting, too, because you could see how we could create an entire educational system based on an illusion. You know, we could, yeah. we, could, we could believe that, you know, instead of a teacher maybe spacing out learning over months, um, mm -hmm. they, they might, you know, instead do an entire module in a week. And that, you know, it's, I guess it's great. Everybody does better on the test, but nobody remembers anything a month later. Exactly. <laughs> you're, you're dead on. Oh, that's scary. That's, that's why there's been a push, at least in higher education, to, um, to have cumulative tests where you keep revisiting that previous information to force your students to study it again, um, but also to ensure that they actually learned it 
you know, and retained it the first time. They didn't just regurgitate it and uh, forget it forever. This is um, what this is what you study, though. This is your you because part of what you're trying to do is increase uh, learning skills and and tools for people to to, to know how best to, to to transmit information and retain information. Absolutely, and and the way that my research has really looked at that is is starting from a very basic question of what are we doing in the first place? Why why are our memory predictions sometimes off? And if I can figure that out, maybe I can make some recommendations for for how to improve those if I can figure out why it's breaking down in the first place. In the mm. same way that a mechanic um, you know, isn't just interested in how fast your car goes or what the performance is, but in really understanding you know, how it works in the first place will allow you to, to build a better one or to fix the one you have. Is um, are there many? I mean, are there dozens of illusions that are inaccurate, or are there just a couple? In the end, how off are we on our memory? Uh, there, there's a small handful of them, and and they can really be kind of categorized. So, the stuff that I've looked at is uh, a lot of perceptual illusions, where you know you have that ease, as I was talking about that fluency, that ease of learning. Um, Sometimes it's accurate. Sometimes it's related to actual memory. But a lot of times it can be tricked because, you know, it's perceptually easy, but it's not actually improving your memory. Um, so that could be considered one category. The other, the other big one that I mentioned is um, just false beliefs about retention. And, you know, the idea that if you mass all of your studying together and you really cram a lot, yeah, you learn it. And, you know, five minutes later, you're going to do great. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you space it out, you'll actually remember that for you know years as opposed to minutes. <laughs> so true, so true. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. David Frank um, about our memories and, and the illusions, really, when you think about it, how you think you learn or how you think you will remember something will set you up with the systems you create, how you go about learning, whether you would make the list or not. And uh, when we come back, Dr. David Frank will continue to educate us on what else we can do to improve um, our own ability to retain and remember those important things in life. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you remember. Thank you, Babs. Welcome back to the program. Dr. Matt here, and today we're talking with uh, Dr. David Frank, uh, who is a professor, um, uh, did some some work at Case Western University, and uh, is now on his way to an even bigger and brighter world as an assistant professor at Texas A&M University in Commerce. Um, as we are talking, we, we've been getting into the fact that everybody, you know, we have memory issues. We want to remember and, and maintain certain thoughts. And if, you know, if somebody gives you a list of stuff to do, you want to make sure you remember it. But a lot of us may believe we don't need to write it down because, oh, we'll remember it. Only to find out, you know, a few minutes later that we didn't remember it. And so he, David's helping us understand that some of this is predicated on illusions that we believe in that actually influence how well we predict how we'll remember something. David, thank you again for being with us. Thanks again for having me. Does, does it, the funny thing is, is we, we keep predicting like we might remember something, um, but then we keep validating we don't, but we don't change 
we just keep doing it again and again. So at what point you would think if some of these illusions, uh, for example, like the, the belief that if something is stated louder that we'll remember it, why don't, why don't we change and, and get a new illusion um, if it's not working for us? You know, that's a great question, and it's, it's one that's kind of baffled me as someone who's, who's been interested in learning and memory for a long time. Um, the more I, you know, when I started my studies in, in graduate school, I discovered I was doing things a lot better, and not everyone was doing them that way. Everything I was doing was being validated by research, and, and lo and behold, that was not the norm. Hmm. Um, apparently, I just uh, I, I had some hunches, or I pay, was paying a little more attention to it. I think part of the problem, though, is that, um, you know, there, there are always heuristic biases and, you know, what you do and don't remember what comes to mind, you know, in terms of memory failures and stuff. But part of it is in order to really understand what's affecting your memory, what's leading to better learning, you really have to be able to monitor that stuff and aggregate that information and keep tabs on it. And if you're not actually recording that information and paying attention to it, you know, like someone like me, who's a, a cognitive psychologist would, it's really easy to to not pick up on what's happening. You yeah. know, if, if you're not paying attention to the causes, um, you're not going to understand, you know, why you're getting the effect. And I think that's part of the problem is we don't really lock on to what we did differently, what was different about that thing I remembered versus that thing I didn't remember. Instead, we rely on these, these basic cues in the moment to tell us whether something feels like we're learning. And as I've mentioned, sometimes those cues are accurate and sometimes they're really not. Mm-hmm. It's so true. There's the old, old adage, uh, that which you, I think it's like, that which you receive too easily, you esteem lightly. And yep. it actually makes sense, doesn't it, with our learning that if, if I, for example, you taught us that if, if we have an easier access to the data and uh, the process of learning was so much easier, we, we didn't have to work for it. So we, we may not – our minds itself may not retain it. It's not something that we need to store. Yeah, that's true. And, and just going through the cognitive effort of, of studying and really, you know, coming up with ways to remember a piece of information really just improves the memory as well. So when it feels easy and you don't go through it, you don't take that second step, you don't get the benefits. So so I guess, um, for example, um, me, my wife saying, will you run to the store? And I'm like, sure. Um, and I don't make a list. And then I end up forgetting something because that was such an easy transaction. She just dictated four things or five things to me. Mm-hmm. But by me complicating the process a little bit more by writing it down, is it the complicating of the process by writing it down that makes me remember it? Or is there something about the writing that makes me remember it? Um, does that make sense? So, Because simply just adding another task to make something a little harder to do um, would probably just improve my memory of it, right? Yes, in, in general, that's correct. It, just going through that extra step of writing it down can be beneficial. What would be even more beneficial, and this is uh, less uh, practical if you're going to the grocery store, more practical, say, you're studying for you know, a course where you actually want to retain the, the stuff long term, because let's face it, after you leave the grocery store, at that point, you're done, right? Yeah, right. Um, you're allowed to forget it then. You don't need to retain it for too long. But if you really want to have you know, long-term access to what you've learned, 
the best thing to do is to not necessarily trust the experience while you're learning. You know, oh, this feels easy. I think I'll write it down anyway. And quiz yourself over it after a delay. One of the best cues for whether or not you've learned something well is whether or not you can remember it after a delay. Because if you can't remember it 15 minutes later, you're not remembering it for the exam you know, three weeks later. Right. Um, and you're not going to remember it you know, five years after you've graduated. By contrast, if you remember it only with a lot of effort, that's also a sign that you really didn't store the information very well and you might be losing access to it. Interesting. Uh, but if you remember it very quickly, now that fluency of being able to retrieve it quickly, that's actually a pretty good clue that it's stored really well, mm. um, that you really did learn it the first time. So you're much better off if you test yourself and use the test as a cue as to how well you've learned, as opposed to the learning experience, which, you know, is subject to all these illusions. Well, and I guess the test, so the, the, the memory moment, the first moment, and then the retest, let's say it's two weeks later or a week later mm-hmm. or whatever, the retest is actually continuing learning. It is. And, and not only does it you know, give you a second opportunity to learn it if you've forgotten it, it's another repetition, but also the act of actually retrieving it from memory strengthens memory more than just rereading your notes for example. Okay. And so this is something that's been called the testing effect in which uh, there's a real push now from, from cognitive psychologists to try and get this in the education you know, system more, is that having more tests and forcing people to retrieve the information actually strengthens them and makes them resistant to forgetting in the long term, much more so than just rereading the book, re-watching or listening to a lecture that's been recorded. Those things, that repetition helps, but not nearly as much as having to pull it from your own memory. It really strengthens those memory traces. And that's another desirable difficulty. People don't like it. Tests are hard. (laughs) They require a lot of effort. But it's in a a sense, I hate to use the the muscle analogy because the brain's not really a muscle, but it's kind of like lifting weights. You know, yeah, it's hard, but you get that much more for the effort you put in whenever you do the hard test and actually retrieve it from memory. The, the process is a little different, the way our neurons work compared to muscle fibers, but you know, the analogy, at least for practical purposes, kind of holds up. Well, oh my heavens, and it makes so much more sense. I mean, it just brought back every horrible teacher that I used to really not like because they would have quizzes every day. Yeah, but what a brilliant students, way to learn. The students hate it, yeah. and, and I've, I've gotten you know, people complaints about, you know, he makes us do these weekly quizzes, and then he, he asks us about things on, on exam two that were covered for exam one. It's like, yeah, but you got an 89, or you got a 95. Why are you complaining? Exactly. It, it worked. I taught you something. To me, this is great success. You, you owe like me. It, but, uh, That's right. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's probably the same reason people hate their drill instructor in the Army. You got him in great shape, but yeah. probably hated every moment of it. Well, this makes so much sense, too, because um, when, when you think about the bigger tests that you have to take to get into schools, universities, the AACT, the SAT, a lot of these kids are going to take classes on these. And as part of the classing classes, they're constantly taking tests. They're testing and they're testing and they're retesting and they're retesting. And they so it's interesting on the biggest exams you need to use to get into school and that you're spending thousands of dollars to prep for. They're using these models. They really are. And, and, you know, I think there's, there's a, a second benefit of having a lot of tests, and that is 
you learn sort of how to prepare for tests and you learn, you know, what those tests are going to look like, too, is, is a big part of that model is, you know, if you've never seen the ACT, you know, you don't want your first time to be the time that you're doing it. But right. yeah, actually, by testing yourself and preparing in that way and taking all the pretests, you know, and sample tests that come with those, you know, programs that people buy, they're actually improving their memory for, the, for that information. That's pretty cool. And uh, because I was convinced, David, that I'm just not a testing person. But I, what I realize is I also never practice tested. So if, if I would go learn the art of testing, take classes on it, and then practice test, practice test, practice test, I probably would have been a testing person that could have handled the test better. That's most likely the case. I think a lot of the reason that people hate tests are because they don't know how to prepare for them right. or they get anxiety um, my approach as an instructor has always been inoculation. I'm going to test you until you get used to it. That's um, great. And, and because there's so many tests, no one test is going to be, you know, quite as impactful. You know, so if you, if you bomb one of the tests, no big deal. It takes the pressure off when you know you've got, you know, more grades going into that average. And, and lo and behold, it also improves memory. So, um, well, and, yeah, and maybe people, just a lot of people think it's terrible when and, they're doing it. <laughs> and maybe there's there's some brilliance to this as a parent that's out there listening that um, to create memorable learning and experiences, it it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't even have to be you don't have to make everything easy for your kids to learn and easy for them to do. Maybe the chaos itself is the great learning and it forces a deepening of their of their understanding because they've got to dig for the knowledge. Don't just yeah, hand everything to the kids. Yeah, I think and I think that's uh, pretty accurate too. I think that's one of the uh, you know maybe something that was you know working in favor of people back when it was somebody up standing in front of the classroom lecturing from their notes and there were no visual aids or anything. Um, I think there are great you know perks to having visual aids and things that make learning really fluent. But yeah. sometimes the effort that goes into the learning processes is just as important um, for, for long-term retention. I, and I believe that's something science is really backing up. Yeah, and I'm sure too, David, because I've, I've sensed it and I've heard other research on it. Let, let the people do the learning instead of you do all the instructing. Ask the questions that make them – that are the hard questions. So you could use a really easy role or a really easy metaphor for everyone to see – but then let then ask hard questions about it that make them learn. Absolutely. Um, you're engaging them. They're having to come to conclusions on their own. And one of the great things about that is, is you're actually capitalizing on a number of psychological phenomena when you do that. You're capitalizing on the testing effect because they're having to pull information from memory themselves, even if that's supporting information that helps them converge on the correct answer. But also, that information is typically very idiosyncratic to each learner. Each learner, if you're asking a hard question, is going to get to an answer, hopefully the right answer, but they'll get to an answer. It's a really hard question. There might not be a right answer. But they'll do it, you know, using their own, you know, knowledge. And mm. that means that everything that you just taught them is tied to something they already knew. And that's going to strengthen memory for the previous information that they've now retrieved. It's going to strengthen it, the memory for the new information, which you've now created new neural connections, new pathways. Um, you know, if you think of it like a spider web, if you've only got one pathway, that pathway deteriorates, you lost your memory. But if you have a whole spider web of different routes to get there, you know, you've got that detour. If you lose any one of those, you just detour around and you come up with, you remember it, 
um, using a different set of cues. Um, That's super cool. I mean, that, how powerful is that by just simply kind of not forcing them, but pushing them to use their knowledge to answer the questions, whether they're right or not, you've, you've actually kind of surfaced their issue, their information, and you're now wrapping this new concept around their information. It's pretty cool. Absolutely. And there's, there's been some really good research that has looked at, well, is there any harm in them coming up with the wrong answer? You know, are you yeah. going to reinforce the wrong answer? And surprisingly, it doesn't seem that harmful. It seems like if, if you correct it right away yeah. and you explain what the correct answer is, people seem to retain that really well. It's not like you're reinforcing a wrong answer um, as long as you do it right. You know, yeah. just the fact that they came up with something, now that that memory is active and they have a chance to correct it, that process seems to go a lot better than people, you know, might intuitively think it would. That's fascinating. And again, we also know it's better than the illusion of yelling really loud. Yeah, that'll scare them. Um, interesting stuff. Dr. David Frank is his name, and uh, he's he's just a great resource uh, for learning. You can go look up that uh, article, Illusions Influence Our Predictions about how well we'll remember things in the future. Also be looking for him as an assistant professor at Texas A&M University in Commerce. We'll take a break, my friends, uh, helping you learn. Now let's, uh, let's, go, let's go get ready for this great weekend that's coming up. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's that time. It's time to wrap it up uh, for the weekend because uh, next hour, screen cleaning with Jeffrey Simpson will be up next. It's going to be a fun one. What are we talking about? Cole put something together that's really quite special. Did he? Yeah. Little Cole. We're, we're going to be talking. Little producer. <laughs> we're going to be talking. Well, board man. What do we yeah. call? What do we call Cole? He's got a better title. He's just title. Cole. No, but no. It's like Cher, but They're it's very, Cole. He's got a very important title, and we don't know it. Well, it's more important than just saying board op, so we yeah, don't no, know what it is. he's not a board op, but he is bored. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. We're going to be talking video games. Ah. Video games, and we're going to be speaking with a student here at BYU that was able to take his video game to a major competition. He was one of five finalists How did he do? out of about 400 schools. Holy cow, that's cool. Yeah. So notice what you're doing with screen cleaning. You're not just talking about the movie screen. That's right. You're talking about the video game screen. That's right. And is it clean? Yes. Finally. Yes. So what else? Anything else on the show that we need to pay attention to? Uh, We're going to be playing a couple of movie trailers, one which would fit very well in the MT News segment. Excellent. Another one uh, that – actually, I don't know. Only one trailer. Okay. Well, we don't want to to scare it, scare people away. Also, you'll be uh, doing a little – Toss to BYU Sports Nation. That's right. And you like to play games and with we them. Might, we might have a little trivia for them as well, see Excellent. how well they do. It's all straight ahead. In fact, in just about uh, 20 seconds, it'll kick off Screen Cleaning with Jeff Simpson. Have a great weekend, folks. I'll be back next week, Monday again. And then 4th of July, is up. we're off for that. So take care of each other. Make it a great weekend and stick around for Screen Cleaning. We'll be back. If you can't get-
guest by listening to that music. Today on Screen Cleaning, we're talking about video games. There's a new video game movie coming out that's a big-budget reboot of a beloved uh, Robin Williams classic. We'll be speaking with a video game creator about his new game, and I'll even go head-to-head with him in a video game trivia game. And to top it all off, We'll talk about paying it forward in the most unlikely of places. Thank you for playing Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Jeff Simpson, the host of Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. And I'm joined here, as always, by uh, Cole Wissinger. Who good runs... morning. Good morning. He runs the board. He creates all sorts of fun jingles. And he is the mastermind behind our trivia contest today. It was quite spectacular, I've got to oh, say. Oh, you're too kind. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You can, you can hear this show every Friday at 9 a.m. Mountain Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time. And on screen cleaning, we're all about helping you, uh, helping you help your family find quality entertainment, whether it's movies, whether it's stand-up comedy, or in today's case, video games. Because there are a lot of violent video games out there. It's true. A lot of video games you probably wouldn't want your children playing. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, we would play Street Fighter Two, and there was this character Chun Li, or I would always call her Chun Li when I was right. younger. Yeah, and. Uh, my mother, whenever she would come in the room when we were fighting Chun Li, she would ask us, "Why are you hitting a girl?" So, even Street Fighter Two at one point was considered a little too violent. And uh, we've, as I said, we've got a great show for you. We're going to be featuring a uh, a new trailer that you won't hear anywhere else. Not going to tell you what it is just yet. And uh, we will also be sharing a movie review up here in a minute. But first, let's give you the best in entertainment news from the past week. First of all, in our best renewal news, Better Call Saul was renewed for a season four. Now, if you haven't seen Better Call Saul, it's both a prequel and a sequel, kind of, to the giant hit that was Breaking Bad. Now, I know a lot of people might stay away from this. I don't think I would want my wife to see Breaking Bad. But uh, the great thing about Better Call Saul is it's basically Breaking Bad without the violence and the drugs. And now, when I say that, there there is a little bit of violence in it. Uh, and there is a little bit of drug. There are a little bit of drugs in it as well, um, but not to the level of Breaking Bad. This right. is this would be a, a PG thirteen show for sure, um, and it's it's basically just a story about two brothers that love each other, but they really have a weird way of showing it. So it's it's a straight drama, and that's what I really enjoy about it. It's a great character driven drama that again. It's not going to have all that uh, really violent and drug-heavy content that you would see in Breaking Bad. So it's kind of the gateway show to Breaking Bad, yeah, I guess. Yeah, get in there the soft yeah. way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, now in the best reboot news, Cole, were you a big fan of the film Jumanji when you were growing up? I was born in the early 90s, of course. Okay. I was a fan of anything Robin Williams yes. was doing. And, you know, it actually started out as a book. And then they turned right. it into a movie. Short little book. Same way with then Zathura came exactly. around. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Also a short little book. Same concept. So Jumanji had Robin Williams, Bonnie Hunt, even a young Kirsten Dunst was in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a very enjoyable film. I remember enjoying it as a kid. 
And I was a little hesitant about the reboot, especially when I found out it starred The Rock and Kevin Hart, who I I don't think I've seen a movie with him in it that I've liked, uh, and Jack Black. So I thought, okay, that's interesting that you take three gentlemen that typically do uh, comic material and you're putting them all in starring roles. Well, then I found out after watching the trailer, and you got to go watch it. It looks like a ton of fun. They're basically, and this is very fitting for today's show, uh, it starts out with these four kids uh, being put in detention, and they've got to clean out this old messy room that they're that the principal or a teacher makes them clean. Instead of the attic of an old Victorian right, house. Right, right. And they don't find a board game called Jumanji. They find a video game uh, called Jumanji. Uh-huh. And they each select their characters and then they Because press... that's the least important part of any video game, yeah. right? You just take your avatar, let's get playing, right? Yeah, I never put too much thought into that. And then they, of course, get sucked into this game. Mm-hmm. And so the, the high school students uh, become The Rock, Jack Black... Kevin Hart, and then a, a, a girl. Karen Gillan. Yes. From Doctor Who fame and oh Guardians my. of the Galaxy. Wow, you know your Doctor Who. Uh, it looks very entertaining. So, you know, it's not Jack Black and The Rock. It's The Rock pretending to be this nerdy kid. And Jack Black is, pretend. you know, he's playing this girl that, is Jack Black in the game. Mm-hmm. That's probably way more confusing than it needed to be. But just go watch the trailer. It it's looks fantastic. It looks, it looks fun. Great. Did you watch it? Yeah, I've, I've watched it. It looks like Kevin a lot Hart, of fun. Kevin Hart, you know, little guy, even shorter than me, is playing the big, tall uh, football player yeah. also. So if you want to go see The Rock uh, play a wimp, then this is, this is your chance to do that. Uh, and then also in our Ripped from the Headlines segment... We have... I think it was last the last show that we did, which was uh, two weeks ago. Um, Samuel L. Jackson was in a film called Snakes in a... No, Babies in a Lobby, right? Right. Because uh, apparently there are a lot of babies being born in the lobby. My baby that was just born was born in a lobby. So it's kind of a kind of a big thing that's happening lately. I don't think it's a... People are meaning to do it. It's just happening. But, uh, you know, in this film, he complains about having to clean up after all of these babies, and he delivers them, too. And uh, he's doing another movie because there was recently a story in the news about a woman who woke up to find that her hand had been swollen or is swollen, and, you know, she was bitten twice in the the webbed part between the the thumb and the forefinger, she said it was the most excruciating pain she's ever had in her life, and uh, so apparently there's another movie, uh, and you're never gonna guess what it is, but I think it stars Samuel L. Jackson. From the director of Snakes in a Car. I have had it with these mother-loving snakes in this monkey-fighting car. Snakes in a Toilet. I have had it with these mother-scaring snakes in these fresh and shiny toilets. And babies in a lobby. I have had it with these mothers in distress delivering their small and fragile babies on my squeaky clean floor. Comes the sequel you didn't see coming. Looks like the victim suffered swelling in her left hand due to a couple of snake bites. What do you say, Chief? In situations like these, there's only one thing to say. I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. Uh, 
Anything else you want to say, Chief? Oh, yeah. I have had it with these mother-biting snakes in these reasonably comfortable beds. Snakes in a bed. Rest in peace. Wow. That sounds that sounds even better than babies in a lobby. The Snakes production value is going up with each of these movies. It sounds like the the budget's getting bigger each time that well, he uh, has people, another success. People keep paying to go see these mm-hmm. movies, I guess. Again, that's a trailer you're not going to hear anywhere else, probably for good reason. Um, but uh, we're going to take a break. Up next, uh, up next, we'll be sharing one more bit of good news, and uh, along with a movie review, but not for the movie you might be thinking. How's that for a tease? We'll be right back. This is Screen Cleaning. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. You know, we just shared some of the best news in Hollywood over the past week, but we've got one more bit of news that we want to share with you. Oh, boy. I'm a huge fan of this news because uh, I was a big fan of the film Tremors growing up. Who wasn't? With, with Kevin Bacon and uh, Michael Gross from Family Ties fame and Reba McIntyre, if you can believe it, as a uh, as a gun-toting uh, Republican, I would assume. Of course she was. <laughs> but uh, Tremors was a very popular movie um, back in the 90s. And so much so that, you know, it has all these sequels. And Kevin Bacon has never been in any of the sequels, though. They made a a TV show. Wasn't in that either. Mm -hmm. But we've just heard that Kevin Bacon is going to be doing a Tremors reboot. And it's going to be on sci-fi. Whoa. And he's never wanted to do a sequel to any of his movies. This is the one character that he's wanted to come back and reprise. So good for him. And, uh, you know, there's I, I could go on and on about Tremors, but I think my movie review of Tremors is going to have to suffice. I feel the earth move under my feet. There's a killer on the loose! The semi-obscure 1990 film Tremors... Tremors. ...takes place in the fictitious desert community of Perfection, Nevada where the 14 people who live there discover underground creatures who snatch up their victims using their giant snake-like tentacles. They're coming! Tremors has everything a 10-year-old boy could want in a film. Monster guts, explosions... Oh yeah, and Kevin Bacon, who, according to comedian and hungry man Jim Gaffigan, is all you really need in a film. But despite Kevin Bacon's presence... The movie's best moment comes from the trigger-happy odd couple of Family Ties' Michael Gross and country singer Reba McIntyre, heard here defending themselves from the monsters they call Graboids. We don't see anything, Val. Bert! They're under the ground! They're under the ground! Big monsters underground! Now get out! Hurry! into the wrong rec room, didn't she? This film was practically a love letter to the campy creature features of the 50s. But unlike many of those films, we're laughing with the characters, not at them. This is a very funny movie that's even a bit scary at times. 
And while it wasn't a huge hit at the box office, the high home video sales seemed to justify four sequels, as well as a TV series. Now this valley is just one long smorgasbord. Be careful, because your next step may be your last. <laughs> So that was the review for Tremors. So also keep uh, your eyes peeled for the Tremors reboot on Sci-Fi starring Kevin Bacon. Yeah. Woo! He's back. <laughs> All right. Well, up next, we'll be speaking with a BYU artist who took the game he helped create to compete in a major competition. This game is a first-person shooter game that you can play with the whole family. Stick with us. This is Screen Cleaning. You know, as technology has improved, video game graphics have not only gotten better in quality, but have become more lifelike and visually graphic. BYU students tried to tackle this problem going into the largest showcase the industry has, the Electronic Entertainment Expo, or E3 as the kids like to call it. Here to speak to us today is the team leader of this project, Nate Swinney. Nate, welcome to Screen Cleaning. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for being here. So, uh, first of all, tell me more a little bit about the E3 convention, because I really don't know anything about it. Okay, uh, real quick, just to clarify. Um, so, I was the art lead, and we actually had quite a few different people um, in charge of the project. Our director uh, was Jorge Gonzalez, uh-huh. um, and then we had a tech lead and also a game design um, lead as well. So uh, E3 is more, it's for really big companies to kind of show off their latest products, what they're, what they're working on, um, and it's really designed to inform the consumer what's, what's available, what's, what's kind of the new stuff that's happening um, this year. Um, so you have really big companies like Xbox and Microsoft and Bethesda with their, you know, really enormous displays. Yeah. Um, and then there's a small um, area for indie developers and also a student section. And for the student section, they have um, five finalists um, out of a group of about 400 schools. And uh, we we submitted our game. We didn't feel like we were totally finished with the project, um, but we, we gave it a shot and uh, we got picked as a finalist. So That's awesome. Way to go. So basically, it's a convention where people get to show up and play video games all day. <laughs> yeah. That sounds pretty good. So how did it go? How did you guys do? And, and tell us a little bit about your game that you took with you. Cool. So the game was called Knockback. Um, and the the project actually started before I got involved. Um, we had a couple people who, who worked in kind of the early development. Um, and kind of decided some of the main gameplay mechanics. Uh, but our game is essentially a, a first-person shooter, but we because it's BYU, we wanted to make sure things were, were not terribly violent. Sure. <laughs> so um, we ended up uh, with kind of a, a mashup between something like Super Smash Brothers and Overwatch. It's got kind of a cartoony feel, um, but rather than shooting people and, like, whittling their health down till they die... 
we just had a mechanic built in where you kind of like sumo wrestling knock them off, oh, interesting. off the map out of the okay. arena. Yeah. So I know you, you mentioned that you came into the project a little later on, but where do you think the inspiration for this video game knockback came from? Um, almost everybody on the project is a gamer. So, I mean, we just uh, we kind of built a game around the things that we enjoy. Um, so, and because of that, we run into a little bit of conflict because we all have slightly different tastes. Sure. Um, but it's just kind of an amalgamation of the things that we all we all like doing. And it's really a process. We start out with something that's really basic. And as you play test and, and you go through the game, you realize, hey, this isn't working or we need to incorporate a little bit more of this. And it just kind of... It evolves on its own. We just yeah. kind of carry it along. So I cannot wrap my head around how you would begin to program codes to, to you know, to eventually get the images on the screen that you see in a video game. So, gosh, it sounds like such a complicated process. What are some of the challenges that you guys came across when you were putting this together? Oh, there's there's totally – there's a lot that's really difficult. There's tons of, of – things in the game that I honestly have no idea how it works. Um, <laughs> there's a whole system inside of our engine called the Blueprints. Um, and a lot of the code in there, I just, when when a programmer is helping me figure something out, I'm like, I, I don't actually know what you're doing in there, but I'm, yeah. I'm glad it works. Um, probably one of the hardest things, though, is just working with different personalities. I think that's one of the unique experiences here at BYU is we get a chance to work as a group and you learn... Yeah. A lot of the the dynamics of of just a big group project where you're you're coordinating between programmers, illustrators, technical artists, modelers, um, a sound designer. So for for me as a as the art lead, I think probably the most challenging thing was um, just like producer like work, S- scheduling and setting deadlines. It was it was pretty pretty new to me. So a lot of the games that are out today are really not geared towards families at all. You know, they're first-person shooter games, and, you know, when you shoot them, you can see the blood coming out, squirting out of the bodies or just very realistic-looking weapons. So you, you mentioned there's a company out there that focuses on this very thing to, to put out video games that are focused on families. Is this kind of what you guys set out to do, and uh, what else can you tell us about this company? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a big part of BYU is making something that is more uh, family-friendly. And we talk a lot about getting different morals and, and sets of ideas into the industry. Um, and, and, and like you said, there's, there's stuff that's going on right now in the industry that's really cool. I, I can't think of the, the name of the, the company, but they made uh, a game called Journey, and uh, their latest game is Abzu or something strange like that. Um, but they're really, really artistic games where it's it's more about this experience um, where you're exploring and you there's just beautiful scenery and it has a little bit of a, a moral in there as well. A- another game that came out recently, uh, Undertale, <laughs> it's a game that allows you to be as violent as you want, but the game ends up kind of punishing you later on uh, Interesting. for uh, being aggressive and being huh. violent towards um, enemies. And there's there's a way to play the game where you actually don't have spoilers. You don't have to hurt anybody. You can yeah. still beat the game. That kind of it reminds me of those little – did you ever hear of those Tamagotchi yeah. devices where, yeah, you can be mean to this little – 
this little animal that you have, but there are consequences. You know, maybe the animal gets sick or dies. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. No, so there is – there's really cool stuff happening in the industry right now and we're just trying to get um, more of that more of that going on. I, I mean video games is, just, is a medium like any other. You can use it to create art. You can use it to broadcast really good ideas or, or, or you know, negative ones. We just want to create media that is that's more wholesome. Uh, well, ours ours is still a little bit rough and, and tumble, but um, at least putting putting a bit of a different face on video games. Okay, that's great. That's what we're all about on screen cleaning. So thanks for uh, thanks for sharing that with us. I do want to just before we go to break, I want you to kind of give us like a little thirty second synopsis of what the game is all about. What's the object of the game? And uh, where you know the average person can pick it up for sale or play it, where yeah, cool. So I'm pretty sure our uh, our launch date is going to be July seventh. Um, okay, and on Steam. So if you want to play it on a PC, you download Steam, and then you just I think if you search BYU Games, it'll show up, or you can search Knockback. The game is basically you're a dinosaur in kind of like a futuristic arena. And you play against other players. Uh, you have three weapons, and you just shoot at each other, try and knock them off the level. And we, we have kind of an interesting mechanic for, for how you actually get points. Rather than just each person you knock off gives you one more point, we wanted to make sure that even people who aren't familiar with first-person shooters, people who aren't you know avid gamers, yeah. can, can jump in and feel like they always have a chance. So the way that you get your score is... When you knock somebody off the off the arena, you get their score added on top of yours. So that way, if even if oh, you're in cool. dead last, you can jump in and 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 potentially win the game. Yeah, it was really fun. Sometimes we'd get like a surprise somebody who wasn't a gamer who would win a game, and they'd yeah be cheering. And well, it sounds excited. like a lot of fun, and you know, man, if I knew how to do that type of thing, that would be. Oh, I probably would have done that instead of gotten a uh, broadcast <laughs> journalism degree at BYU. It's a it, it's a fun little uh, area to be. Yeah, can think of a better <laughs> word than that. Well, Nate, let's do this. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to uh, play a little video game trivia contest with you. Obviously, we can't play video games on the radio because I don't know how interesting that would be to our listeners. But uh, we're gonna play a little trivia game. And you probably are going to have a leg up because you mentioned that your game's going to be available on some platform that I had never even heard of. So, yeah, you could do very well when we come back. This is Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. Oh, I hope... That song is in this trivia game we're going to be playing because I know that that's from Super Mario Brothers. Not Mario Brothers, the arcade game, but Super Mario Brothers. And uh, that's from Vocal Point, of course. We're here with Nate Swinney, who is on the team that created the Knockback video game that was recently featured at the Electronic Entertainment Expo, or E3. You were one of the five finalists out of 
400 schools, you said, right? Yeah, somewhere around there. That's incredible. That's great. Congratulations on that. And uh, we were hoping we could have a little fun right now because obviously, like I said, we can't play video games on the radio because that wouldn't be very interesting. (laughs) Uh, But we are going to have a little video game trivia contest. And I say contest, but, you know, there's... No prize. I, we don't have the budget for that. But uh, Cole put this together, so I'm going to turn it over to Cole to officiate and explain how this is going to work. Cheat codes. For non-cheaters, on-screen cleaning. Ooh, I love that. So the game is called Cheat Codes for Non-Cheaters, because here at BYU Radio, we do not endorse cheating in your video games. But of course some video games... Um, the designers make it so that you have shortcuts and you have bonus stages and you have other cool extra things that you can do. Um, and I wanted to highlight some of those things, some of those strategies, we'll call them, that can help you get a leg up next time you're playing these video games. Okay. So I'll play a little um, soundbite or music bit, uh, and you guys see if you can guess which game it was from. And then if you need a clue, I'll tell you what kind of cheat code or bonus stage or shortcut that it involves. Sounds good. All right. Oh, is this... Is this from one of the Street Fighter games? Yes. Do you know where it's from? Oh, it's not when you're beating up the the old Honda. Um, It it is. That's the bonus stage. Yep. So in Street Fighter, you get a bonus (laughs) stage after every so often. You know, Street Fighter being the less violent of the Mortal Kombat kind of style. This this has got to be Street Fighter 1 then because this doesn't sound like Street Fighter 2. Uh-huh. The original. I tried to keep it original and and, uh, old. You too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was my favorite part, beating up that old Honda. I don't really know why that was there, but uh, it was fun. Something I'd never get to do in real life, but virtually I can do it to my heart's content, I guess. <laughs> All right, ready for round two? Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, are you sure this isn't from an animated movie? Positive. This is very cinematic music, though, isn't it? So I'll give you the clue. The cheat code that involves in this, this is from another fighting-centric game. Um, this There's a boss that you play against in this particular round, and there's a certain cheat code that allows you to play as that boss. He happens to be a white-gloved hand. Oh, wait, is it Super Smash Brothers? Yes. Hey, hey. Oh, I couldn't tell if it was Super Smash Brothers or something from Kirby. Way to go. You know, I don't even really know what Super Smash Brothers is. Is it that where all the Nintendo characters fight each other or something like that? I've yeah. never played it. Way to go. Way to go, Nate. Nate got that one. Sweet. <laughs> all right. Next. Oh. Oh, I know what this is. Oh, this is uh, Sonic the Hedgehog. Yep, it's another bonus stage. So you can picture Sonic is bouncing around. No, it sounds like an underwater song. Usually they have that slower. Uh huh. It's in kind of the zero G where the stage is spinning around you and you just have to oh, grab as many right. rings as you can. Yeah. Bonus Sega, stage. Sega Genesis was one of the systems we never owned. We had to go to the Ross 
house just down the street to play Sega Genesis. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, Sonic is one of those, like, really classic games that I don't think I've actually ever played more than, like, a couple minutes of. I'm so disappointed because I downloaded it on my Wii, and I can't figure out how to make him run fast. So I got to go fast. I can't figure it out. Anyway. Okay, this next one, it's it's almost a cheat if you p- pick a particular character when you're in multiplayer. Okay. And if you did, you'd probably hear this noise. We just well, talked yes. about this. Goldeneye. Oh, yeah. So the character you got to choose is Oddjob because he's shorter That's than everybody the cheat. else. <laughs> yeah. Paintball mode. That was so much fun. Because all the bullets that you're spraying all over the place, you, it's, the room gets all colorful. Yeah, I remember the uh, DK head mode where all the characters have super huge heads. Oh, that's awesome. Because that's another one of the cheap... Yep, cheap. the producer that made that game also made the Donkey Kong Countries. That's why they kind of like added that little cheat in there as well. Oh, cool. I love playing that game and then watching the movie. And the the levels on the game and the scenes in the movie are pretty much identical. It's crazy. Yeah. They did an amazing job on that game. One of the best games ever made. So we are screen cleaning, right? And so I thought I'd include a couple movie-themed ones. Okay. So the next two, this first one, we'll see if you can guess the movie, but I'll also accept what video game it's referencing. Okay. Up, up, down. (laughs) Stop. Sounds like somebody's having a stroke. Oh, it's the sweet lifeblood of the game. Is this uh, Wreck-It Ralph? It is Wreck-It yes. Ralph. Right. And he's punching in the ultimate cheat code. What was his... Up, up, oh, I don't... Yep. Up, What's up, his... down, <laughs> B, something. What's his name again? The character's name? King, King of the Candy? Sweet... Yeah, King Candy, I think. King Candy. Oh, yes. The, the, I don't know the code, but it's up, down, back, back, something or other. Yeah. That's cool. Alan Tudyk uh-huh. voiced that character, by the way. Great Rick voice Ralph. actor. Good guess. Way to go. Okay. And he's putting in Konami code, which was the very – it's one of the oldest cheat codes that there is for the old Contra or other games back on the NES that gave okay. you either like unlimited lives or let you shoot all the things at the same time <laughs> if you were on one of those space games. By the way, I should mention uh, Street Fighter was actually a movie as well. It was. It yeah. wasn't a – a horrible Good movie. Horrible movie, but yeah. <laughs> There's yeah, there've been a few terrible video game movies in the past, but this, I think this is the gold standard Ooh. of video game movies. Okay. Let's see if you can guess where this is from. Can now it turn into a workout video. That's mm. kind of all the music in this particular soundtrack sounds Oh, like Tron? You betcha. Oh, yeah. My goodness. You would think that I would get the movie ones right, but it's not turning out that way at all. Very good, (laughs) Nate. Wow. Wait a minute. Tron or Tron Legacy? Which one's the new one? Is that Tron Legacy? Yep, it's the new one. Yeah, Um, you got it. Yeah, because this is the... Tried to trick him, didn't work. Daft Punk. uh, Well, Daft Punk did all the music for the new one. And See, it's a really good soundtrack. I don't play very many video games anymore. <laughs> but I do remember, oh, the, the biggest frustration other than not getting the video game to work was having to press pause and just turn off your TV because there was no save option. 
That was the worst. I'm sure my parents loved seeing their, uh, you know, their electric bill after that. Anyway, any any well, more for us, Cole? I've got a cool cheat code involving taking maybe a break or a pause okay. in there. Um, let's see. So I'll play you the soundbite first. Guess the game. Oh, that's Pac-Man. Right? It is. Yep. Yes. It's Pac-Man. Level complete. <laughs> See, and that is a great game. On Pac-Man, there was a little place in one of the corners next to where you start off where if you hide there, they can't get you. Like the ghosts <gasps> will just pass right through. So if you need to go get your lunch or if you need to go take a bathroom break or you just need to leave with your friends and come back a You're half hour later, me. it would just – they'd just keep going through you and you could pause the game because there was that no real pause awesome. capability. Huh. So, um, wow. You know – the only thing better than Pac-Man in the arcade is four-person Pac-Man in the arcade. Have you guys ever played that? I Check haven't. it out. Go to the Nickelcade and you'll see it there. Okay. Man, I love cheats because I need as many lives as I can get because I'm not very good. So this next one, if you're not very good at playing this old game, you needed to pick one particular team. I'll give you that um, hint, that little cheat for this one. Okay. Oh, I've played this, I know. Oh, yeah, 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 it's on the tip of my tongue. It's Mega Man. No. Oh, it's got to be Mega Man. It's not. It's one of the Mega Man, one of the Mega Men. Oh, ah. I'm seeing somebody surfing and get swept up, uh, nope. swept up by the sea. No. <laughs> so I'll give you a hint. Again, you have to pick a specific team to get the uh, the bonus here. <sighs> it's a football game, and if you picked the what? Raiders, you would have Bo Jackson playing for you, and he was the greatest cheat code in this game because he was untackleable as fast as it could be. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I heard that music in Mega Man. Old, Pretty sure. Old video games might have uh, copied just... a little from each other. <laughs> all, right, all right, I'm not too happy about that one. It was from Super Tech Mobile. <laughs> I I did not even play that one. that one. Yeah, I'm a sports fan. I had to include a little bit of my passion. <laughs> okay, and yeah. the video games that sucked up the most of my life here. No, while you were talking, I was remembering how little sports knowledge I actually have. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I got one more okay. for you. And this is maybe the most well-known shortcut or cheat in a video game. Okay, I think winner takes all unless I don't get it right on this one. <laughs> Good yeah. plan. Oh, I'm going to defer to my guest on this one. Uh, this is just Super Mario. Exactly. Yep. But uh, this so is, what? you have to be underground to hear this music. We, as kids, you know how crude kids can be. We would always put lyrics to this song, and it would be, uh, smelly, stinky socks, smelly, stinky socks. Yeah, that's how mature we were. But uh, And those were the only three words in the song, smelly, stinky socks. You could just repeat it over and over and over and then and you'd over. have to, smelly, stinky, yeah, anyway. <laughs> well, at the whenever you're underground, if you complete... In the very first world, the second stage, and you kind of jump up on top, you can sneak around and get to the warp zone. I do know about that. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you can just fast forward and shortcut all the way to world two or world three or world four, and then you can do it again. I mean, you can complete the whole game just by completing maybe 
five or six total stages um, just by utilizing the original shortcut in the most famous video game of all time. This is bringing back so many good memories. Uh, you know, I remember having a Nintendo, a Nintendo running pad. I remember wanting the uh, the power glove, which was introduced in the film The Wizard with Fred Savage, where they go to the Super Mario 3 tournament, which is also where they introduce Super Mario Brothers Part 3. Oh. Now Jeff's got to show off his movie <laughs> knowledge because he was shown it, up earlier in yes. the game. Yes, Nate, congratulations. I think you knew a little bit more than I did in that contest. And and Cole, thanks for putting that together. That was fun. Yeah. Anytime. Now it just makes me want to <laughs> makes me want to go home and, and waste all my free time on I wouldn't say time wasted, time well spent. Uh, it's fun. Yeah. Anyway, Nate Swinney, thank you much. Uh, thank you so much for being on screen cleaning on the Matt Townsend show. It was fun having you on the show. Yeah, thanks. It was a lot of fun. All right, and we're excited to see what else, uh, what other video games you come up with, and the bright future you have in store. So, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we are going to be speaking with our friends at BYU Sports Nation. This is Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. In keeping with the video game theme we've got going on here on Screen Cleaning today, that's just a little snippet from Donkey Kong Country, one of the greatest video games ever, also one of the easiest. And uh, now it's one of the greatest parts of the program because we're going to be speaking with Spencer and Jerem from BYU Sports Nation. How are you guys? Sports. Fantastic. We still play video games. You do? Mm-hmm. Ready to take on Glass Joe and Super Macho Man. <laughs> Well, I'm glad because uh, I think I gave you a little bit of a heads up, but I have a few trivia questions for you. Bring them on. Um, And uh, they're all, I mean, they're all kind of similar, but uh, we'll see how you do. All right. Here's the first one. This one's super easy. Is the character Scorpion from Street Fighter 2 or Mortal Kombat? Please. Mortal Kombat. What does he say? Get over here. (laughs) <laughs> or come here. Is it Sub Zero that says finish him? Uh, no, that's that's just the. Uh, oh, that's just the. Oh, okay, gotcha. That's just at the end of the. Gotcha. Battle round. Okay. Yeah. So you played some bit, of, a little bit of that. Sounds oh, like. Yeah. Yep. Okay, this one's a little more difficult. What is the name of the cheat cartridge you could place on top of a Super Nintendo game cartridge? Genie. The Game Genie. Whoa. <laughs> Yeah, baby. Couldn't Very afford that good. growing up, though. <laughs> wow. That's great, because everybody I've been asking about it here uh, doesn't know what I'm talking about. So too young. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're too old. All right. Here is another one. What does Ken say in Street Fighter Two as he's doing his fight moves? Hadouken! Okay. Or... Uh, there are a few. There are a few. I have no idea. <laughs> When he does the kick, it's like unintelligible commentary. Okay. Um, but the the Hadouken or Hadouken is is the fireball. So or Aryuken is hey, also that's, that. We're yeah. gonna accept that because what yeah. I found is that he says uh, Shoryuken. Okay. So very good. It's it means rising dragon fist. Oh, does it really? Yeah. Okay. Now, what does Ryu say? In that same vein, you know, when he's fighting, what does he say? Doesn't he say the same thing? 
No. Really? See, as a kid, I remember it sounding like... Oh, okay. Okay, yes. But yes. apparently, I looked it up online and it, it's not anything like that. It's Tatsumaki Senpukyak. Yeah, uh, video game developers couldn't exactly uh, get that <laughs> audible sound out very well in 1992. And that means simply tornado whirlwind leg. Which is exactly what it is. Because they say the same <laughs> thing when they shoot the fireball and when they do that rising dragon punch. But Ryu has that unique whirlwind kick sound. (laughs) (laughs) What a great game. And how many other games are you going to play where you get to beat up an old Honda? Oh, it's so true. The bonus round? Yeah. The bonus round. Yes, absolutely. In these latter days. Now, the thing is, Jeremy and I are big on the retro video game scene, but none is more prominent than NBA Jam. Boom shakalaka! Tournament edition Whoa. in 1994. And, that, te- and Tecmo Super Bowl. Yeah. Those are our two yeah. like, faves. Were those we, two old to have uh, commentators? Well, there's a commentator there's in NBA Jam. a commentator. Yeah, he just says, like, yeah. wild shot! <laughs> <laughs> or, like, he's on fire! Yeah, yeah. Uh, fun fact. So one time, we were both batching it. I slept over at Spencer's house. We played video games till the middle of the night. <laughs> the next day, I took Spencer to the airport, and then I got food poisoning from whatever we ate the night before, and and threw up in a garbage can outside like a like a hobo. <laughs> in at the airport, at the airport garage. It was an amazing experience. Wow! Yeah. But it was all say, worth we it. We haven't done it since. Nope. Done it again. <laughs> that was year one of the show. But I, I'm willing to bet you thought it was all worth it. Oh, man. Well, now it's a good story. Priceless memories. Now it's a good story. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you for sharing that little story with us. I, mm-hmm. You probably haven't even shared that on your show, so we appreciate that. Oh, I'm pretty oh, sure no. that we've shared it, it on the I show. shared it the next show, probably. <laughs> oh. yeah. Yeah. All right. Sure. Well, no shame. Speaking of your show, what is coming up on your show here in just oh. five minutes? Today is compelling and rich. Yeah, we've been discussing BYU and their role of independence for now six going on seven years all week long, like big picture what does it mean? Where is BYU? What's the most important part of independence? And now today, it kind of boils down to this. What is the most important part of each individual BYU football season? Because they are independent. How do fans value? Like, where do they place value on certain things within the season? Like, what is number one? Is it winning? Is it getting money? Is it ESPN exposure? It's like, the, where, where does it, it rank? It's the cougar tail. Or is it the cougar tail? And there are some people that honestly feel that way. I like going to the football games to enjoy family time and eat cougar tails. Like, there are people out there that would say that. Yeah. Uh, Riley Nelson, the last quarterback to quarterback BYU to a 10-plus win season, will join us. Plus, Brian Logan will weigh in. And Eric Mika begins NBA Summer League with Miami Heat. We'll tell you when. Ooh, sounds like a great show. And two cougars former Cougars, in the top ten on the PGA Tour will give you the latest and greatest from the Lynx. Oh, that's going to be a good show in five minutes and eight seconds. Real quick before you go, best uh, stadium item, food item. Oh, man. Man, those 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 cinnamon roasted almonds. Oh, yeah. Garlic fries, Safeco Field. Really? Okay, loaded nachos, Dodger Stadium. Oh, yeah, also good. Plus a doya dog. <laughs> Gotta oh, get one of those. Now I'm hungry. All right, guys, have a great show. Thanks, have a Jeff. good weekend, too. You too. Happy 4th. My name is Jeff. <laughs> they love to do that.
Anyway, Cole, I wanted to ask you what was what uh, what is your favorite way to clean a game cartridge? Because you know games get old when you put them in the console; they don't always work the way that they should. So, what were some of your methods for cleaning those games? The correct answer is the correct answer. You just okay. hold it with one hand on either side, like a harmonica. Okay, and you get it right up close to your mouth, and you just blow right across. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Let me give you a few others that uh, I don't know if they worked, but, you know. Well, I don't was, know if that one worked either, yeah. but it made me feel better. So some people would take a Q-tip and oh. uh, dip it in alcohol, um, rubbing alcohol, and then they would kind of rub it on the inside of the cartridge like that. Those those little, like, chips, though, that were in it seemed like they were soft and cardboardy. Like, I wouldn't yeah. want to get those wet. Yeah. I well, thought. so there was that. Um, you could also, like, bang the side of it. Okay. Uh, that seems then, like the violent thing. Like if I had just lost <laughs> or if it had just cut out on me in the middle of a stage, then I might try that option. Yeah. And then we would also – we you'd put the, the cartridge into the console, but you wouldn't push it in all the way. You'd you'd push it in until like the like – maybe like until about a half an inch and then you would push it down and have it kind of like brush up against the inside of the console. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> See, I understand I where you're going sense. here because I would have to wiggle mine. I'm talking – so Super NES was my go-to system and I still have it and it still works for the most part. Um, but a game like Yoshi's Island that I've played more than maybe the other ones, mm-hmm. when I stick it in and I turn it on, it doesn't work. And then I just – I take it out, I blow on it and then I stick it back in and like wiggle it around or I like yes. push it up against the side as I'm turning it on and then I let go very gracefully to see if it works. <laughs> See, when you're a kid, you've got to try anything and everything you can to get this game to work. And once you get it to work, then you hold by that system because oh, yeah. obviously whatever you did yeah. was exactly why. <laughs> it couldn't be that it just finally started working on its own. No. You you fixed it, Jeffrey. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we're going to end our show with our panning for good segment, as we like to do on each show. There's good in them there, hills. This one's great because it involves food, which is another form of entertainment, going out and eating. And uh, it's it's just a great, it's kind of a hero story, if you will. A customer's act of kindness at a southern Indiana McDonald's sparked a chain reaction of niceness in its drive through line. Hunter Hostetler is a cashier at a McDonald's in Scottsburg, about 50 miles north of Louisville, Kentucky. He says an older woman waiting in the restaurant's drive through Sunday decided to pay for the big order of a man with four children in a van behind her. Hostetler says she asked him to tell the man, Happy Father's Day, then drove away. The kind gesture, and here's the great part, prompted the man to pay for two cars behind him. And that generosity eventually spread to 167 cars by closing time. Abby Smith was in one of those cars, and she says it's wonderful knowing that there's still a lot of great people out there. You might say that they paid it forward, like Kevin Spacey and Haley Joel Osmond. That's true. I've seen that film. And Bon Jovi, Uh Helen Hunt, Academy (laughs) Award winner, Helen Hunt, and two-time Academy Award winner, Kevin Spacey. Everything does come back to the screen here on oh, Screen yes. Cleaning. That is, that is correct. And uh, as they would say at McDonald's, I'm loving it. I'm loving this story. Yeah, it's a great it's story. So nice. Anyway, just an idea for something that you can do that's movie-related but also heroic in a way. Maybe, not, uh, maybe it's not paying for the person behind you, but maybe it's just uh, 
showing your kids an interesting movie that you loved growing up. Anyway, once again, thank you for playing Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show, where we talked about video games today. That's going to be it for today, so you know what that means. Game over. Thank you.